A self-detonating drone killed an American contractor and wounded five soldiers, and U.S. forces launch a retaliatory strike in Syria against a facility being used by Iranian-backed militias. The Pentagon believes the drone was made by Iran. Today is Friday, March 24th, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, the man who inspired the film Hotel Rwanda is soon to be released from prison after the government commutes his sentence. Others remain locked up. How about the other 20 who have been in the same crime with him and have actually pointed to him as even having been their leader? On Capitol Hill, Senator Elizabeth Warren renews her call for tighter controls to help restore confidence in the banking system. And never-before-seen IRS records show that CEOs are sometimes making multi-million dollar bets on the stocks of direct competitors. It's 401. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. President Biden is in Ottawa for meetings with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, and he says the U.S. is lucky to have Canada to its north. NPR's Franco Ordonez is traveling with the president on his first visit as president to the city. The president is meeting with Canadian leaders to discuss a host of issues, including national security, support for Ukraine, and migration. Sitting with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, Biden said the United States was fortunate to have such a compatible neighbor. We have Canada to our north, share these values. All the values are the same. We disagree and agree on things occasionally, but there's no fundamental difference in the democratic values we share. The meeting follows news that the two governments have reached a deal that will allow both countries to turn away more migrants at unofficial border crossings. Franco Ordonez, NPR News, Ottawa. The U.S. says it will protect its personnel in Syria after the U.S. military carried out airstrikes against Iran-backed forces for a drone attack that killed a U.S. contractor and wounded five service members and another contractor. Air Force Brigadier General Pat Ryder. We do not seek conflict with Iran. We don't seek escalation with Iran. But the strikes that we took last night were intended to send a very clear message that we will take the protection of our personnel seriously and that we will respond quickly and decisively if they are threatened. And today, U.S. troops were under attack for a second time in as many days as part of a gunfire exchange with militants. The House passed legislation today that aims to give parents more insight into what's being taught in public schools. And Pierce Windsor Johnston reports Republicans say the bill creates greater transparency while Democrats call it a, quote, extreme attack on schools. The bill would require schools to provide parents with a list of books and reading materials that are available in school libraries. It would also require parents to consent before allowing a student to change their gender identifying pronouns. House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries says the bill has nothing to do with parental involvement or engagement. The extreme MAGA Republicans want to jam their right-wing ideology down the throats of students, teachers, and parents throughout America. Jeffrey says the legislation fails to give parents any new rights in education and that it could make it easier for books to be banned in schools. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. In Minnesota, a nuclear plant that leaked radioactive water for a second time will be temporarily shut down. Xcel Energy says the leak of hundreds of gallons of water containing tritium was discovered this week from a temporary fix at the Monticello Nuclear Generating Plant, about 40 miles northwest of Minneapolis, where 400,000 gallons of water with tritium also leaked in November. This is NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts State Auditor Diana DeZoglio says she will conduct an audit of the state legislature as planned. Her comment came this afternoon after Speaker of the House Ron Mariano issued a statement earlier today that DeZoglio doesn't have the legal authority to audit the legislature. Mariano says her request runs contrary to provisions in the Massachusetts Constitution and that the public already has full access to the House's financial information. DeZoglio says she's not asking permission and that she'll push ahead with the audit to help increase transparency, accountability, and equity for people in the state. Massachusetts U.S. Senator Elizabeth Warren says Congress needs to act to avoid bank failures similar to what happened at Silicon Valley Bank. WBUR's Amanda Beland has more. Warren is calling for a return to stronger regulations on banks that have assets totaling between $100 and $250 billion. That's how big the failed Silicon Valley Bank was. Those larger banks benefited from the 2018 rollback of regulations that were implemented following the 2008 banking crisis. This is part of the reason that I, along with some other senators, are calling on the Fed right now to tighten down on the regulations that they spent the last five years loosening and to go back and do tough supervision over these banks. Warren says Congress needs to provide stability for the markets and restore confidence in banks. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amanda Beland. COVID-19 levels in Boston-area wastewater are on the upswing. That's according to data from the Massachusetts Water Resources Authority. The seven-day average of the virus found in the part of the MWRA system that serves the South Shore, they jumped nearly 40 percent between March 16th and March 21st. The numbers rose about 30 percent in the water the authority provides to cities and towns north of Boston. And Major League Baseball is dropping its request to trademark the word Boston on behalf of the Red Sox. Red Sox owner John Henry says the trademark application was initiated last week by the league, not by the Sox. He says the application was withdrawn today at the request of the team. Henry says MLB's intent was to protect the club's use of Boston on its apparel, not an attempt to prevent others from using the city's name. In the forecast, partly cloudy skies overnight tonight, cooler than it has been, about 34 degrees overnight. Tomorrow should top out at only 40. Keep the umbrella around. We could have snow and sleep before 1 in the afternoon, then just plain rain. Sunday should be the more pleasant day. Sunshine gradually moving in. Gusty winds. Highs in the mid-40s. 50, or in the mid-50s, that is, on Sunday. 52 degrees now in Boston at 407. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by CFP, Certified Financial Planner Professionals, committed to acting in their clients' best interests. Learn more at letsmakeaplan.org. On a Friday, it's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. The past 36 hours have seen an escalating tit-for-tat series of attacks in Syria. On one side, U.S. forces, and on the other, Iranian-backed militias. Today, U.S. warplanes attacked a facility used by those militias in retaliation for a self-destructing drone that killed an American contractor and wounded five U.S. service members yesterday. For more, we're joined now by NPR's Tom Bowman. Hey, Tom. Hey, also. So what is the latest at this point? Well, U.S. intelligence says that it was an Iranian drone that hit this American base in northeast Syria near the city of Hasaka. And besides killing that American contractor, 
Two of the five soldiers had to be medically evacuated, though I'm told their injuries are not life-threatening. Now, U.S. says uh, there have been 78 attacks in Syria by these Iranian-backed militias in the last several years, including through drones, rockets, and mortars. And this is the first American death, they say. Now, two U.S. uh, F-15 aircraft attacked the Iranian militia facility nearby. There are a number of deaths, according to reports, and the U.S. is still assessing the damage. And also, the U.S. has recovered pieces of the drone and are now analyzing them. And Elsa, just today, another attack. The U.S. says 10 rockets were fired at another American base in Syria. All the uh, rockets fell short but wounded four Syrian civilians. Let me make sure I understand. You said that there have been about 78 attacks by these Iranian militias on U.S. forces in Syria in the past several years. I mean, we hear a lot about ISIS in Syria, but not much about Iranian-backed militias, right? What are they even doing there? Well, of course, Iran is supporting the Syrian regime of Bashar al-Assad, and these militias have been targeting U.S. forces for some time. Of course, next door in Iraq, there are also these militia groups that occasionally target U.S. facilities there. And just yesterday, the top officer for the region, uh, American General Eric Carrilla, talked with lawmakers about Iran's military capabilities, including UAVs or unmanned aerial vehicles. Let's listen. Today, Iran possesses the largest and most diverse missile arsenal in the Middle East with thousands of ballistic and cruise missiles. Iran also maintains the largest and most capable UAV force. Iran's vast and deeply resourced proxy forces spread instability throughout the region and threaten our regional partners. So even though it seems like the Islamic State or ISIS has been defeated, it sounds like both Iraq and Syria are still pretty dangerous places for American forces or contractors right now. Is that right? Oh, absolutely. There are some 1,000 U.S. troops in Syria working with Kurdish forces and going after the remnants of ISIS and also facing these Iranian militias, as we were just talking about. I was in northeast Syria a couple of years back, and there were also members of the Russian mercenary group, uh, the, the Wagner Group, who attacked an American base there. Mm-hmm. And next door in Iraq, uh, U.S. forces are still partnering with Iraqi counterterrorism troops to again go after what remains of ISIS. Just last month, Elsa, there were some three dozen raids, partnered raids with Iraqi forces, and about 200 last year. So you're right, the Islamic State has not been defeated, but the U.S. will be fighting, it looks like, not only ISIS, but Iranian militias for quite some time. That is NPR's Tom Bowman. Thank you, Tom. You're welcome. NPR sent layoff notices to about a tenth of its employees this week. The network also announced the cancellation of four podcasts. It's a wrenching time here in the newsroom due to what NPR's chief executive calls an existential threat, a projected revenue shortfall of more than $30 million for the year. NPR media correspondent David Folkenflick is covering this. Hey, David. Hey, Mary Louise. All right. Tell us more about who and what NPR is cutting. Well, you mentioned the four podcasts, and some of them are pretty familiar to a lot of folks. Invisibilia, Louder Than a Riot, about hip-hop. You have uh, Rough Translation, which is uh, a conduit for coverage of international affairs, and everyone and their mom, uh, comic uh, podcast spun out of Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Yeah. Uh, roughly 100 people in all are being separated from NPR, that is, giving their 
walking papers across all divisions, although, as our chief executive, John Lansing, said, this is not an across-the-board cut. They're trying to be targeted in what they did. Yeah. What what are they saying are driving these specific choices? Well, among other things, they said they wanted to get away from what they called seasonal podcasts and make sure that what they're offering is more frequent and dependable, sustained. If you think about embedded, an investigative podcast that was kind of periodic. Now it's going to be at least 36 weeks of the year. There'll be fresh new things. Our investigative narrative you know, enterprise work will appear there. They said they want to protect radio shows. They, John Lansing, our chief executive, talked about wanting to protect the journalism, and he wanted to protect what he called his North Star, that is broadening our audiences, our appeal to a broader demographic, more diverse, not only our offerings, but the people producing that content so that we could have audiences for generations to come. Um, I'll circle back to that. But but one more thing John Lansing has said, our CEO Lansing has said, is that NPR is facing an existential threat. How urgent is it? How bad? Well, look, NPR is, according to PodTrack, the nation's third largest producer of podcasts. We've had huge growth and we've put resources into that. And that's been enormous for us. We, For a time, we had more corporate underwriting or advertising revenue coming in from podcasts than from radios. But then that ad market for podcasting collapsed. We had a shortfall pretty quickly this year. 15 to 20 million became $30 million budget deficit on a $300 million uh, budget. And it's growing. Lansing said if we didn't make major structural changes, we'd be out of business by the beginning of our fiscal year in 2025. I know, David, because I'm sitting in the newsroom that there's a lot of anger uh, in response to some of these cuts. Share a little bit more of what the internal reaction has been. Anger, I think you've seen pain, you've seen anguish, in some cases betrayal, a feeling perhaps that somehow... Um, the network is turning its back on younger journalists, on people of color, on the kinds of audiences John Lansing talked about as his North Star. Now, the network has just released this afternoon data showing that the network is still going to be 42% people of color. That's what it was before the cuts. The network would remain, uh, I think, over half uh, female, you know, 58%, I believe that number is. And so they say it's keeping consistent, but that they've tried to work hard to do it. And let me also say union leaders, Pat O'Donnell represents the largest union of workers at the company. She says there was a real problem and that she felt the company negotiated in very good faith. Last thing, David, what does this mean for our listeners, for our readers? Listen, audiences will undoubtedly be disappointed as as many of our colleagues are today. But, you know, you've got to understand in media, in broadcasting, in podcasting, nothing's guaranteed for life. And the network has to figure out ways to produce things that people want to hear while fulfilling its mission. NPR media correspondent David Falkenfleck. Thank you. You bet. The United States has two new national monuments. They were dedicated this week by President Biden. One is in Nevada, the Avi Kwame. That's the Mojave name for Spirit Mountain. The other is Kastner Range in El Paso, Texas. And we got reports from both monuments, starting with Ryan Heinches of member station KNAU. Avi Kwame sits at the southern tip of Nevada, south of Las Vegas, and at the convergence of the Arizona and California borders. The craggy, rugged landscape is part of the Mojave Desert. It's home to abundant plant and animal life. It's also among the most sacred areas for a dozen southwestern tribes. Timothy Williams is the chairman of the Fort Mojave Indian Tribe. 
This is where our creation story begins. Much like uh, other religions, they have a place of creation. There's definitely some areas within their own stories that are sacred to them. And this is our place. I'm a Bequa May the Mountain. Williams was with President Joe Biden earlier this week as he signed the declaration. The half-million-acre expanse is the president's largest monument designation to date. Its centerpiece is Spirit Mountain. Each time you you know you go up there, you you just feel something different up there. You know, so powerful it can knock you to your knees. For over a decade, the Mojave and other tribes and conservationists have pushed for federal protection of the area. Taylor Patterson is a member of the Bishop Paiute tribe who advocated for the designation. All of the tribes that call the Southwest home have moved through this area and found it to be really important and really significant. Patterson says Avikwame is also a key migration route for bighorn sheep. It's critical habitat for desert tortoises and many other species. You can find some of the largest and oldest Joshua trees in the country there. People Make the mistake of the desert being desolate, but we know there's so much there. You can really see that in full spectrum in Avikwame. The designation comes as indigenous peoples in Arizona and northern Nevada fight mining projects backed by the Biden administration on sacred lands. Still, dozens of southwestern tribes, along with local governments, supported the president's designation of Avikwame as a national monument. For NPR News, I'm Ryan Heinches. I'm Angela Kocherga, and I'm standing on the edge of the brand new Kastner Range National Monument. Stunning mountains are in full view. There's a wide open expanse. Some of the first golden poppies are starting to bloom. This land has been home to multiple tribal people, dating back thousands of years. And apparently they even had spiritual connections to some of these sites as well. Scott Cutler is president of the Frontera Land Alliance, one of the El Paso organizations that led the fight to preserve Kastner Range. Uh, there are rock art sites on Kastner Range that are very significant. Natural springs and wildlife made this a prime location for tribes. The landscape is still important to the Isleta Sur del Pueblo people in El Paso. Tribal Councilman Rafael Shorty Gomez worked hard to preserve the 7,000 acres. You need those places. You need those places for people could, to escape, you know, to refocus on life. And if, for the kids, too. This now peaceful place served as a training ground until 1966 for soldiers who fought in World War II, Korea, and Vietnam. Veterans from across the country also wanted the National Monument, says Frontera Land Alliance Director Janae Renault. There is history here. It was a live firing range, hence the range. The decades-old fight to protect Kastner Range grew more urgent as development from El Paso sprawled closer. On the edge of Kastner Range, a mockingbird competes with nearby traffic. Before the monument can open to the public, the military has to ensure all unexploded munitions are cleared. But those who fought long and hard are patient, knowing the land is protected for future generations. For NPR News, I'm Angela Cocherga in El Paso. And you are listening to All Things Considered. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The bank Credit Suisse was long considered a national treasure in Switzerland with a great reputation. Last week, it was bought by rival UBS. A fallout coming up in about 20 minutes. And then Utah becomes the first state to pass an age verification law for anyone using social media. It says if you're not 18, you need your parents' consent first. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bass, Barry, and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. Stocks rose across the board on Wall Street today. The Dow gained four-tenths of a percent. S&P grew by more than a half percent, and the Nasdaq picked up three-tenths of a percent. A new report out today shows promising trends in the number of jobs added in Massachusetts. The Bureau of Labor Statistics estimates nearly 92,000 jobs were added in the state between February of 2022 and 2023. The sectors that added the most jobs include hospitality, scientific education, and health. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Good News Garage. Over 5,500 donated cars given to New Englanders in need since 1996. Tax deductions and free towing. Goodnewsgarage.org. And Fairbank & Perry Goldsmiths in Concord. Owned and operated by women designer goldsmiths. Creating custom and original fine jewelry for everyday life. Fairbankandperry.com. Nice end to the day today. Partly cloudy skies overnight tonight, down around 34 degrees. Tomorrow should be mostly cloudy and wet. Look for snow and sleet possibly in the morning, especially late morning tomorrow. And then just plain rain by the afternoon, about 40 degrees. Sunday could start off cloudy and damp, but then we should have sunshine for the bulk of the day, milder, inching toward the mid-50s. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from BritBox with the Confessions of Franny Langton, one woman's story of courage, murder, and forbidden love in this new original drama, available to stream at BritBox.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at Metamucil.com and from the listeners who support this NPR station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Juana Summers. This week, a grand jury indicted 10 people on charges of second-degree murder in the death of Ivo Otieno. He was in a mental health crisis at Virginia's Central State Hospital earlier this month. And sadly, he is the latest case of a Black person killed in an encounter with law enforcement. Ivo Otieno's older brother, Leon Ochiang, spoke at a press conference last week. Can someone explain to me why my brother is not here right now? Someone explain to me why my mother can't sleep, can't eat. We're broken. Our hearts are broken. This week, I spoke with two other families who know that heartbreak and who now know each other. Before we get started, I don't think I had the pleasure of meeting Princess, and if I do, I don't remember. Yes, Ms. Rice, I'm sending much love to you and positive energy and support to you and your family. Thank you. You as well. Um, That's Samaria Rice and Princess Blanding. In 2014, police in Cleveland shot and killed Rice's 12-year-old son, Tamir. He'd been playing with a toy pistol. The officers involved in the shooting avoided federal charges in a case that sparked a national reckoning over police brutality. I have the love for the people and still fighting for justice for my son. 
which he will be 21 years old June 25th of this year. And Princess Blanding is the sister of Marcus David Peters. Officers shot and killed him in Richmond, Virginia, during a mental health crisis in 2018. Blanding helped pass a state law named after Marcus, even though she says it didn't do enough to push for police accountability. She remains an outspoken activist. For me, I get strength by speaking out, by fighting. We brought both women together on Zoom and over the phone to reflect on this moment and what it's been like since their lives were torn apart. I started with Samaria Rice, and I asked her how she's feeling eight years after Tamir was shot and killed. A lot of um, sadness and disappointment, heartache and pain. A lot of rage and very emotional. Nobody in America could tell me why I don't have an indictment for my 12-year-old son that was murdered by a Cleveland police officer. So that's kind of how I'm doing these days. I have my good and bad days. It's not easy. And Princess, May will mark five years since Marcus was killed. What, what's on your mind when you think about that? You know, I'm, I must echo some of the things that uh, Ms. Rice said, you know, the pain will never go away. It, it will never go away. The That day is ingrained in my brain and, and May is coming up again. So every birthday, every every May, you know, it's it's that void being put in your face that your loved one, in this case, that my brother Marcus David Peters will never come back again. And, you know, I am very unapologetically a mad Black woman. The system has given me and, and quite frankly, all Black people reasons to be mad Black men and women. And to make matters worse, last January, I lost yet another brother at the hand of police, but this time in New Jersey. So um, it's like the pain doesn't end, whether it's it's my loved ones, uh, you know, or it's, you know, Tamir Rice, you know, whether it's Tyree Nichols, like, there's always another name. So the, the pain continues to just grow deeper and deeper. Um, first of all, Princess, I'm so sorry that you've had to deal with the loss of not one brother, but two. I didn't see as much national coverage of your brother, Marcus David's death, as other names that are often invoked when it comes to the deaths of Black Americans at the hands of police. What has that experience been like for you? Uh, I, 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 I literally was just thinking about that same question and the same feelings over the past, you know, a couple of weeks after the other young man, Mr. Uh, Ivo, was killed here in in Virginia. And the reason why that came back to mind is because this young man was experiencing a mental health crisis as well. The little attention that my brother's case did get was because we didn't back down, you know, because the media put out the, the message, crazy Black man, you know, and tried to make immediately the victim, the criminal. And what I'll say is that, you know, from the lack of coverage, you know, from me kind of getting into the frying pan with these players, I understand how this political system works. So it doesn't surprise me anymore. Samaria, your son's death garnered a good deal of national attention. It is a story that many of us have heard and sat with. I wonder if you can share a little bit about what it was like to be thrust into this incredibly massive spotlight while you were grieving your loss. It was horrific. It was horrible. I had two children still in school at the at uh, in this process, and 
you know, I was given ultimatums to do this and do that and uh, very um, overwhelming because I'm still a mom and I still have two children and I just had a new grandbaby and my oldest daughter. So again, uh, to be thrust in the limelight, it wasn't easy. Uh, it was not easy. It's never going to be easy. You might not come back from a situation like this mentally, spiritually, physically. Police terrorism, it destroys families. Me and my family have PTSD to this day. And America should be ashamed of themselves. There's no liberty and justice for no one that's Black in this country or brown. I'd like to invite both of you to weigh in on what's happened nationally since you lost Tamir and Marcus. As we sit here, there has still not been federal police reform passed. To each of you, what do you want federal authorities to know? Samaria, I'll start with you. I think the DOJ is very cowardly. And um, the whole administration up there, they have blood on their hands. And if they're okay with that, God be with them. They should cease fire on black and brown people in this country. That's what they can do. That's the first and most important thing that they can do. And Princess, what about you? What do you think that federal officials need to understand? We the people have a lot of power when we unite. When the people come together, we move mountains. Um, I am a strong believer that we must take some steps to include ending qualified immunity. I am a very strong supporter of defunding the police, but I also understand what it means. When we say defund the police, we mean allocate funds to systems of community care and service. Police officers shouldn't be the ones responding to a mental health crisis. I also very strongly believe that we must abolish the police. Policing, if you go back to its inception, was never designed to ensure liberty and justice for all. So we can't expect for that soil to produce flowers that were never planted there. So we must abolish the system. And I'm not oblivious. That scares people as well. We abolish it, but we have to put together, we have to build a system that works for us all, that prioritizes community care and safety. So that's where I believe that we must go as a people to force the government to take those actions. Princess Blanding is the sister of Marcus David Peters. She's also an activist and former candidate for governor in Virginia. Samaria Rice is the mother of Tamir Rice. She's also founder and CEO of the Tamir Rice Foundation, an Afrocentric cultural center in Cleveland, Ohio. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Look for partly cloudy skies overnight tonight, down around 34 degrees. Tomorrow should be mostly cloudy and could have some snow and sleet in the morning. Look for plain rain in the afternoon, then partly to mostly sunny skies coming up on Sunday with highs in the mid-50s. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, an educational and wellness program in Wellesley helping college-age students and high school grads get on track. Academics, executive function coaching, yoga, and counseling are designed to help develop resilience, improve confidence, and learn new skills. Summer semester starts June 5th. Semesteroff.com. A new Tennessee law criminalizes drag performances on public property and prohibits minors from attending shows. But drag queen Eureka O'Hara says 
The art form is misunderstood by its critics. We're not trying to harm anybody. We're just trying to be fierce and fabulous and celebrate each other. A conversation with that proud Tennessean. We'll saw the news Saturday on Weekend Edition from NPR News. Tomorrow morning at 8 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. In the face of growing competition from China, Canada's prime minister says his country and the U.S. must together build a North American market to counter supply disruptions on everything from computer chips to solar panel batteries. President Biden also spoke to the Canadian Parliament today, expressing unity and working together toward that end. Canada in particular has large quantities of critical minerals that are essential for a clean energy future, for the world's clean energy future. And I believe we have an incredible opportunity to work together so Canada and the United States can source and supply here in North America everything we need for reliable and resilient supply chains. Biden also expressed joint support for Ukraine, saying the two allies must continue to face down authoritarian threats both at home and abroad. The two countries also agreed to set up an energy task force focusing on clean, renewable power. The man who was celebrated as a hero in the movie Hotel Rwanda is about to be freed from prison. NPR's Michelle Kellerman tells us the case has been an irritant in the country's relations with Washington. Rwanda has commuted the sentence against Paul Rusesa Bagina. He's expected to be able to return to the United States, which has been pushing for his release. Rusesa Bagina was a hotel manager during the Rwandan genocide and rose to fame when Hollywood released a film about his actions to protect ethnic Tutsis who sought refuge at his hotel. In recent years, he's been an outspoken critic of Rwanda's president, Paul Kagame, and was sentenced on terrorism charges. His family says he was kidnapped in 2020 and brought to Rwanda. He's a U.S. resident, and Secretary of State Antony Blinken raised the case with Kagame on a trip to Rwanda last year. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. Stocks ended slightly higher on Wall Street. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. With 27 percent of subway tracks under speed restrictions, an advocacy group is calling on the MBTA to provide more information on the slowdowns. Jared Johnson is the executive director of Transit Matters. The MBTA's new dashboard reports in real time where track issues are forcing trains to proceed with caution. Johnson says riders need to know how long the slow zones will be in place. He says riders are paying the price for the T's failings. When someone is late for work because of a drop bus trip and they lose out on wages, a low-income worker who works hourly or a parent who's struggling has to pay, you know, an extra fee because they're late picking up their child, they don't care. They don't care about larger trains. They care about the fact that they need reliable service to get to where they're going. Two weeks ago, the T's interim general manager ordered the speed restrictions after finding discrepancies with paperwork filed with state regulators. The T says the slowdowns will continue until all track defects are corrected. The death of a passenger on a private jet from New Hampshire was not caused by turbulence as first suspected. The National Transportation Safety Board reported today that the Maryland woman died earlier this month when the aircraft violently bucked up and down. 
The NTSB says pilots were responding to alerts about the jet's flight stabilizing system. The jet was traveling from Keene, New Hampshire to Virginia, wherein it had to be diverted to Bradley International Airport in Connecticut. American Civil Liberties Union is asking the U.S. Supreme Court to take up its challenge to New Hampshire's criminal defamation statute. As Todd Bookman reports, the case stems from the arrest of an Exeter resident who is a constant critic of police. Bob Fries posted online in 2018 that the local police department was corrupt. Though he had no evidence to back that up, Fries nevertheless maintained his belief. He was then arrested under the state's criminal defamation statute, which makes it a crime to knowingly spread false information that can subject someone to ridicule. The case was later dismissed. Since then, the ACLU's Brian House has tried to have the entire statute thrown out arguing it's a tool for the powerful to silence their critics and is unevenly applied. If criminal defamation laws were evenly applied, you would expect to see the court dockets absolutely clogged with criminal defamation prosecution. Lower courts have so far rejected the ACLU's arguments. The U.S. Supreme Court will have to decide if it wants to hear the case. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Todd Bookman. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 435. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Waterstone Lexington a new luxury independent and assisted living community with social and wellness programs and fine dining next to Belmont Country Club, waterstonelexington.com. Should be a partly cloudy, cool night tonight, about 34 degrees. Then for tomorrow, snow, sleet in the morning, rain in the afternoon, right about 40 degrees tops. For Sunday, should be a nice day, mostly sunny with highs in the mid-50s. Support for NPR comes from this station and from IFC Films with The Lost King. From the makers of Philomena comes the story of an amateur historian who believes she's found the lost burial site of England's notorious Richard III. Only in theaters March 24th. And from the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. The man who was celebrated as a hero in the movie Hotel Rwanda is about to be freed from prison. He's been serving time on terrorism charges. The case has been an irritant in relations between the U.S. and Rwanda. And Pierce Michelle Kellerman joins me to talk about what seems to be a diplomatic breakthrough. And Michelle, let's hear details. What do we know about what's happened? Yeah, so uh, Rwanda's justice minister announced today that the government has commuted the 25-year prison term for Paul Rusesabagina and another co-defendant in that case. Um, He's expected to be released on Saturday and go first to Qatar and then on to the U.S. to Texas, where his family uh, lives. And, you know, as you mentioned, it's a case that's really strained relations um, with between the U.S. and Rwanda. I was with um, Secretary of State Antony Blinken in Kigali last year when he met with President Paul Kagame. Take a listen to what he said then. I raised the uh, the case of Paul uh, Rusesabagina, uh, who was a lawful permanent resident of the United States, and underscored our concerns about the lack of fair trial guarantees provided to him. Uh, Kagame at the time seemed kind of unimpressed by this. He came to Washington a few months later for an African leader summit, and he spoke to an event hosted by Semaphore, and he said he wouldn't cave to pressure just because Rusesa Bagina is famous. We've made it clear. There isn't anybody Mm. going to come from anywhere to bully us, 
into something to do with our lives. And that was just in December, Mary Louise. Well, President Kagame does not sound there like a man about to bow to pressure. So what changed here? I think quiet diplomacy really kind of paid off in this case. U.S. officials say that Blinken and Kagame did speak about a roadmap to resolve this case when they met last year, and that diplomats have been quietly working on that ever since. And Rusesa Bagina wrote a lengthy letter to Kagame requesting a pardon. Um, the Rwandans published that letter today. And in it, he promises that, you know, he would spend his remaining days in the U.S. in quiet reflection. Those were his words. And um, he said he would leave Rwandan politics behind him. He's been a vocal opponent of Kagame in recent years. He's the leader of an opposition group that has an armed wing that carried out some deadly attacks. That's what he was tried for. Uh, he denies any connection to those attacks. And in his letter, he wrote that violence is never acceptable. And just briefly, Michelle, for those who haven't seen the movie, don't know the, the backstory here, tell a little bit about what we should know about Rusesa Bagina. Yeah, so he was a hotel manager during the Rwandan genocide, um, and he protected more than a thousand Tutsis who sought refuge at his hotel. And that movie um, kind of turned him into an international star, and he used that fame to speak out more recently against the Kagame government. His family says he was essentially kidnapped in 2020 and brought to Rwanda to face that trial. Uh-huh. They're uh, definitely breathing a sigh of relief today, saying they hope to reunite with him soon. And PR's Michelle Kellerman. Thanks, Michelle. Thank you. A political fight is brewing over the fate of Houston's public schools. The state of Texas says it is taking over the Houston Independent School District. That is the eighth largest district in the nation. It's home to nearly 200,000 students. Republican Governor Greg Abbott and state education officials announced the move last week, citing poor academic performance in the district, among other reasons. But Democrats in the state counter that the move is politically driven. Here to explain more is Domingo Morel, author of the book Takeover, Race, Education, and American Democracy. He's also an associate professor at New York University. Welcome. Thank you, Elsa. Nice to be with you. Nice to have you. So first, can you just briefly explain what happens next in this process? Like, what does a district takeover entail exactly? Usually what it means is the state authority, in this the case in Texas, will be the commissioner of education. They move towards removing the local school board in Houston, replacing mm -hmm. it with an appointed board. And then this uh, appointed board will now resume the responsibility of governance for the Houston Independent School District. Well, you know, Houston's school district is 62 percent Latino, 22 percent black. How likely is it that the new board of managers for this district will actually resemble the district they represent? So my research shows that when the state takes over our district and appoints a new board, that board is actually uh, racially a representative of the community. So mm. I, I suspect that new board will represent the city of Houston. The concern is, who is this board going to be accountable to? Right. So it's going to be accountable to the state, not to the residents of uh, the city of Houston and people who are rooted in the communities. Even when they are on the board, um, they might find it very frustrating when they see that what they thought they will be able 
able to do um, at the board is not in, in line with what the state wants to do. Interesting. Well, beyond the issue of accountability, I mean, how successful are state takeovers in improving academic performance? We don't have uh, any good evidence that takeovers improved educational outcomes. On the other hand, what is clear is the, the political consequences for the community, losing the ability to have a representative body um, at the school board, things like school closures, things like the firing of teachers, the superintendent, all these kind of things that matter to communities, they lose the ability to, to have influence over this. The officials in Texas, they keep talking consistently about this poor academic performance as the rationale for the takeover, but a Census Bureau survey showed that Texas spent $3,000 less per student than the national average in 2020. So how big of a factor do you think that underfunding is in explaining schools' poor academic performance? Lack of adequate funding in the state of Texas, particularly for a city like Houston, can help explain a lot of the challenges. And so this is why, particularly in communities that are lower resource, it's important that they receive the funding. And oftentimes, the city themselves cannot provide all of the funding, and they need outside funding. And this is where the state is supposed to come in and provide those additional resources. Texas is not coming in to the city of Houston to say, we're going to provide more resources and the supports that you need. They're coming in to take over and separate communities from their schools. Well, ultimately then, according to your research, what actually works to improve schools' academic performance? One, again, is adequately funding the schools. Another one is having experienced teachers that have deep connections to the students and that community. Um, having representation at the school board level, teacher level, administrative level. Also having you know wonderful programs that students enjoy, that keep students active in schools. All of these kinds of things are associated with improving education. Takeovers are not really associated with this. In fact, they're associated with the opposite. They don't come in to open more schools, they come in to close schools. And they don't come in to create a collective type of environment between community, parents, teachers, and others. They come in and they separate that, right? So the kind of things that go into improving schools, when the state takeover comes in, they actually do the opposite. That is NYU professor Domingo Morrell, the author of Takeover, Race, Education, and American Democracy. Thank you very much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. We often air obituaries of world leaders, celebrities, and other people on NPR. But today, we bring you an obituary of a bank. Earlier this week, Credit Suisse was purchased by its Swiss rival, UBS, ending a 166-year tradition of banking. NPR's Rob Schmitz has this eulogy. On its webpage, Credit Suisse says it's been entrepreneurial from the start. Entrepreneurs don't ask why. We ask, why not? That is apparently we what dream. politician and business leader Alfred Escher asked in 1856 when the government of Switzerland approached him to help finance the expansion of the National Railroad. He asked, why not? And Credit Suisse was born. And that really led to a transformation of Switzerland uh, into an industrial economy and also opened it up to trade. Mario Babich is editor of Fin News and has covered Credit Suisse from his perch in Zurich for years. He says Credit Suisse's history is enmeshed with Swiss history. 
The bank was long considered a national treasure with a great reputation, a leader in European finance. But things started to change, says Babich, when the bank took a controlling stake in First Boston, an investment bank, in 1988. That might be a bit of a demarcation of sorts where it went into the more traditional American-style investment banking. With that deal, says Babich, Credit Suisse gradually strayed from its roots as a well-trusted bank specializing in wealth management to a bank increasingly focused on bigger and riskier investments and profits. It became a much more international bank. It had gotten away from uh, what people might consider as uh, the safe and boring type of Swiss bank. And instead of safe and boring... Credit Suisse became a bank, as its advertising suggests, that instead of evaluating risk and asking why... We ask, why not? Ten years ago, Credit Suisse asked why not to a deal in Mozambique to develop the fishing industry, but hundreds of millions of dollars went missing. The bank was accused of bribery, the IMF withdrew its support, and it left a currency and debt crisis in one of Africa's poorest countries in its wake. In 2020, a former CEO of the bank resigned in the wake of a scandal where the bank spied on a former head of wealth management. Last year, a former bank employee was sentenced to prison for helping a Bulgarian cocaine trafficking cartel launder its money. Since 2000, Credit Suisse has been fined by regulators for a total of $11.4 billion, nearly four times what UBS paid to acquire it. So it was a bad bank or a bank that had had problems Jesse Griffiths is CEO of the Finance Innovation Lab. And it was that perception that led it to become one of the first ones that people started worrying about when the confidence in the whole system was shaken by the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. Griffiths says under normal circumstances, Credit Suisse, despite its problems, would have survived. It's just that when confidence drains from the system, any bank that is not very sound can become a target. Griffiths blames a bank regulatory system that was weakened under President Trump, eliminating the need for bank stress tests and liquidity requirements. Looking forward, economist Tina Tienachlavidiani says better regulation would help boost investor confidence, which in turn would save future banks from a similar demise. So better, stricter regulations is really, really key, um, key attention to the confidence, uh, because once it's, it's compromised, I think it's very, very difficult to just repair it. And then the critical moment comes and then it's all just blown away. And for Credit Suisse and so many other banks, that critical moment has arrived. Rob Schmitz, NPR News, Berlin. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And coming up in about 15 minutes on WBUR's All Things Considered, former Parkland student and March for Our Lives co-founder David Hogg on the triumphs and challenges of fighting for gun reform. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business, providing small businesses with cybersecurity and fiber solutions at speeds up to 10 gigs. Comcast Business powering possibilities. In sports, Celtics have returned home after a long road trip. Tonight, they tip off against the Indiana Pacers at 7 o'clock. Red Sox uh, are down in Florida meeting the Atlanta Braves. And meanwhile, the team has announced that when the Sox open their regular season at Fenway next Thursday, Corey Kluber will be on the mound in his debut with the Sox. He'll face Baltimore's Kyle Gibson. In the forecast, look for partly cloudy skies overnight tonight. Should be cooler than it has been, about 34 degrees overnight. Tomorrow should 
top out at 40. Keep the umbrella around tomorrow. We could have snow and sleep before 1 o'clock in the afternoon and just plain rain after that. Sunday should be the more pleasant day with sunshine gradually moving in. Gusty winds, highs moving up to the mid-50s. Right on schedule, the Sumner Tunnel will be closing tonight starting at 11. It won't reopen until 5 in the morning on Monday. The tunnel between East Boston and downtown Boston is closed every weekend for repairs, with the exception of holiday weekends. This is WBUR. It's 4.50. WBUR supporters include The Huntington with Clyde's, the joyous comedy from Pulitzer recipient Lynn Nottage at The Huntington March 24th through April 23rd, huntingtontheater.org and UMass Chan Medical School, proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu globe. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. I believe real journalism is essential to our daily life and our collective future. I believe public radio is one of the last great hopes for journalism in our country. If you believe these things too, then I'm asking you to start a monthly contribution to WBUR. It doesn't have to be a lot of money, maybe just 10 to $15 a month. It'll go a long way to protect one of life's essentials. Give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Some of the nation's wealthiest executives have been making millions by trading the stocks of their competitors. That is the conclusion of a new investigation by ProPublica. Their report analyzes decades of never-before-seen records from the Internal Revenue Service, and it finds instances where, quote, the executives bought and sold with exquisite timing. Well, ProPublica data reporter Ellis Simony is a co-author on that investigation and is here now. Hey there. Hi, Mary Louise. Hi. So uh, you write in this story, and I'm quoting, such trading records have never been publicly available. Even the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission itself, doesn't have such a comprehensive database. So I'll start there. How'd you get them? Yeah, you know, we haven't said too much about that um, in terms of the providence of the data. Um, But, you know, once we received these leaked records, you know, we spent several months verifying their accuracy and checking them against other public sources, reporting on them for the last couple of years without any instances of people disputing the accuracy of what's inside the records. So let's dig in on what might be happening here. Is it possible that these execs may be relying on years of industry knowledge and that helps them make smart bets at smart moments? You know, that's certainly a a possibility. And, you know, this kind of trading can be illegal, um, but, you know, it's pretty complicated. We aren't alleging that any of the individuals we're writing about are necessarily acting illegally, um, but we talked with several experts, uh, many of whom were troubled by our findings. You know, they mentioned that this could still run afoul with insider trading laws. Yeah, one of the experts you spoke to is a former chair of the SEC itself, Harvey Pitt, who said... Executives should not be trading in the stocks of their competitors. But just for clarity, is is there actually any rule against doing so? You know, there isn't actually any rule necessarily against doing so. And, you know, one of the things about insider trading is that it can be really difficult to prove. Usually trades only violate insider trading laws when a couple different elements are met. So, so one thing is that traders have to have uh, non-public information that would impact a company's share price. And the second thing is that the trader has to also have 
a duty not to disclose that information or, or use it for, for their own personal benefit. Give me an example. I'm just trying to wrap my head around how this works. When you say you've documented execs from from a range of industries trading the stock of their competitors, what's an example? Yeah. So, you know, one of the people we touched on in our story was the CEO of a company called MGA Entertainment. He's somewhat of a toy magnet. His company is close competitors with the maker of Barbie dolls, Mattel. Um, They're really fierce rivals and have been engaged in litigation between one another. And we found that he traded hundreds of millions of dollars worth of shares of his rival's securities over more than a decade. And he, he strongly denied any wrongdoing. He also declined to be interviewed. But, you know, he really stood out because there weren't any other executives who seemed to be trading in that large a volume with their direct competitor. And oftentimes very successfully as well. Did any of the execs that you write about offer a comment or agree to an interview? How do they explain this? Yeah, you know, so some did. Um, Some said that they, you know, didn't act on any non-material public information. But, you know, nobody outright admitted to to have acted um, improperly. So what happens now that you've put all this information out there? To your knowledge or any of these trades you've written about being investigated? Um, not to our knowledge, but, you know, I think in terms of the takeaway from our findings, you know, one of the really important components of this reporting is just that perception that executives and industry insiders could perhaps be trading on non-public information. This dynamic could really contribute to this idea that the stock market might be rigged or biased to benefit folks who have some kind of privilege. ProPublica data reporter Ellis C. Money, thanks so much. Yes, thanks for having me. Utah's governor has signed two new laws restricting social media apps for kids under 18, making it the first state in the country to move this far on the issue. One law says minors must get a parent's consent before signing up for sites like Instagram or TikTok. State Republicans say that law is intended to protect children. But critics, including some advocacy groups and social media companies, say the law is unconstitutional and will not protect kids. Sage Miller, politics reporter with K. UER in Salt Lake City joins us now for more. Hi, Sage. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for being with us. Okay, so can you just break down for us what is in these new restrictions for Utah? Yeah, there's a lot packed into these two bills signed by Republican Governor Spencer Cox. It requires parental consent for a minor to join a social media platform. It prohibits minors from using social media from the hours of 10.30 p.m. to 6.30 a.m. Parents must be given access to their, their, their children's social media accounts. Age verification for anybody wanting to open up a social media account it outlines how people can sue social media companies on behalf half of children for alleged harms and prohibits targeted ads and data collection on minor users. Okay, a lot there. Can you just tell us more about what Utah Republicans are saying that they want from these laws? Yeah, they definitely want to regulate social media companies, which they say have very lax restrictions now, and they want to limit the impact it has on youth. The bill sponsor of one of the main bills frequently pointed to a recent CDC CDC study that found teenage girls specifically are struggling with their mental health. And supporters like Governor Cox believe social media has played a huge role in the declining health of young teens. He called these apps like Instagram and TikTok very destructive and hopes these bills will give parents the tools to fight back and limit the influence they have on their child's life. And he asked on the last day of the legislature, he was asked whether he would anticipate a lawsuit from social media companies against these changes. And he said, absolutely, he does. I can't wait to hold them accountable. 
I, I can't wait to get in front of a judge and jury with these media companies. It will be one of the happiest days of my life when we, we get to show the world what they've known and what they've been doing to our kids. Well, what about the reaction from social media companies? It sounds like these laws could mean big changes for them, right? It sounds right now that social media companies are being a little bit quiet. These bills don't go into effect until March of next year. So there's still time for companies to figure it out, the legislature to make some changes, and for the companies to ask the courts to block these regulations if they want to. Although Cox said it himself, it's highly anticipated that some organizations will sue. Unsure if that's going to be social media companies or it's going to be a third-party organization that's for Internet rights. But I haven't seen any social media companies go on the records saying that they will sue as of now. But Meta, the company that owns Facebook and Instagram, have released all the ways that they work to protect children and encourage limited time on the platforms. And organizations like the Electronic Frontier Foundation raised First Amendment concerns. They argue these bills will hinder the right to free speech and could actually lead to these companies harvesting more personal data by forcing age verification and other things along with those bills. And there's also a huge question of how Utah is actually going to enforce these regulations and if, if it's even possible to do so. But other states are Mm -hmm. introducing these laws. So it remains to be seen. That is Sage Miller from KUER. Thank you, Sage. Thank you. And you are listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Subaru, introducing the 2023 Solterra, an all-electric zero-emissions SUV with the standard capability of symmetrical all-wheel drive. Learn more at Subaru.com Solterra. And from the United States Postal Service, reinventing its network with shipping options designed to keep businesses moving forward. USPS, delivering for America. USPS.com slash moving forward. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, partnering with the National Society of Black Engineers to accelerate STEM education and careers. MathWorks.com NSBE. I'm here and now executive producer Carlene Watson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. President Biden gives a rare press conference after he addresses Canada's parliament. Biden points to joint U.S.-Canada efforts to support Ukraine, combat climate change, address migration, and invest in shared defense systems. It's Friday, March 24th, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, allegations have come to light that the Department of Veterans Affairs has been aware of racial disparities in decisions about who gets benefits. So to every black veteran out there, you had our back, it's now our turn to get yours. So please give us another shot. More on the discrimination lawsuit. And a 90-year-old tortoise at the Houston Zoo has become a father of three. He'd only been with his mate for about 30 years. What's the hurry? It's 5.01. News headlines are next.
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. President Joe Biden addressed a joint session of the Canadian Parliament in Ottawa today, telling lawmakers and dignitaries in the House of Commons about the strong commitment the countries have to one another. Biden saying the two world leaders have also pledged to stand up to authoritarian regimes and to back Ukraine in its fight with Russia. Canada and the United States share a responsibility and a commitment to make sure NATO can deter any threat defend against any aggression from anyone. That's the bedrock of the security of both our nations. Canada and the United States are not only partners in transatlantic security, we are Pacific nations as well. Head of Biden's remarks, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau talked about the role the two countries play in terms of the environment and other issues. Trudeau is preparing a budget aimed at scaling up critical mineral and tech production. An attorney for former President Donald Trump appeared today before a federal grand jury in Washington. This was part of the Justice Department's investigation in the classified documents recovered from Trump's Florida home. More from NPR's Ryan Lucas. Trump attorney Evan Corcoran entered the federal courthouse in Washington, D.C. around 9 a.m. and left just shy of 1230 without speaking to reporters. Corcoran was a central figure in the back and forth last year between Trump and the Justice Department over government documents that were improperly stored at Mar-a-Lago. Corcoran's appearance now before the grand jury comes after a legal fight over whether Corcoran would have to provide certain testimony and documents sought by special counsel Jack Smith in his investigation into the Mar-a-Lago documents and possible obstruction. The tussle over Corcoran's testimony revolved around questions of attorney-client privilege, but courts so far have sided with prosecutors and ordered Corcoran to appear. Ryan Lucas, NPR News, Washington. Lawyers challenging Florida's ban on providing gender-affirming care to minors plan to ask a federal judge to halt restrictions while the suit is underway. Stephanie Colombini with member station WUSF has more. Jennifer Levi with GLBTQ Legal Advocates and Defenders says Florida's ban denies kids access to treatments most medical associations agree are safe and effective and overrides parents' right to protect their kids. It's really excruciatingly painful when you talk to these parents for them to imagine not being able to provide medical treatment for their kids, not just that they know they need, but that they've seen work. Unlike other states that passed laws restricting access to transgender health care, Florida did so through its medical boards, meaning doctors could lose their medical licenses. Now, the Florida legislature is considering further restricting access to gender-affirming care. For NPR News, I'm Stephanie Columbini in Tampa. Despite continued turmoil in the banking sector overall, U.S. stocks ended the week on an up note. The Dow gained 132 points. The Nasdaq rose 36 points today. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts House Speaker Ron Mariano is flatly rejecting State Auditor Diana DiZoglio's plan for her office to conduct an audit of the legislature. His refusal comes after the House Counsel determined such an audit would be unconstitutional. WBUR's Steve Brown reports the auditor is vowing to move forward with her investigation despite the Speaker's objections. Mariano writes that the contention that DiZoglio's office has the legal authority to conduct an audit of the legislature is, quote, a claim entirely without legal support or precedent, adding it runs contrary to the Massachusetts Constitution. Mariano says DiZoglio's request to conduct an audit violates basic separation of powers principles that the Supreme Judicial Court has called fundamental to our form of government. 
For those reasons, Mariano is denying her request to meet to begin an audit. Desaglio issued a statement in response saying she finds it disappointing the Speaker is fighting an audit of what is happening in the People's House where the People's Business is conducted using the People's Money and added she plans to continue conducting the audit as planned. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. U.S. Senator Elizabeth Warren is criticizing this week's interest rate hike by the Federal Reserve. The Senate Banking Committee member says another quarter of a percent increase is not the best way to get inflation under control. Warren says higher interest rates will lead to more job losses and still not get inflation down to 2 percent. She blames large companies for contributing to inflation. The CEOs in these companies actually brag on their earnings calls that inflation is turning out to be great for them. On WBR's Radio Boston today, Warren called on the Federal Trade Commission and state attorneys general to take action against companies trying to use inflation as an excuse for inflating their prices. A Cape Cod nursing home is said to be operating normally again after a deadly COVID-19 outbreak. The Massachusetts Department of Public Health says residents and staff of the Windsor Skilled Nursing and Rehabilitation Center in South Yarmouth are fully recovered. Five residents died when the virus hit in late February. The state is allowing the facility to resume admissions now. 52 degrees in the Boston area should be partly cloudy overnight tonight. A chilly breeze down around freezing overnight. Then for tomorrow, clouds and rain could have some sleet in the morning. And then most of the rain later in the afternoon. Temperatures only about 42 degrees. And then for Sunday, mostly sunny around the mid-50s. This is WBUR. It's 507. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by CFP, Certified Financial Planner Professionals, committed to acting in their clients' best interests. Learn more at letsmakeaplan.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. Five years ago today, March 24th, 2018, hundreds of thousands of people, many of them teenagers, filled the streets of Washington, demanding an end to gun violence. That was the first March for Our Lives, a demonstration born of the tragedy on February 14th of that year in Parkland, Florida, when a gunman entered Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School and shot 17 students and staff to death. It was the survivors of that Parkland shooting, high schoolers enraged about what they and their classmates had just gone through, who organized that historic march and a movement to curb gun violence that continues today. One of those survivors was David Hogg. At 17, he became one of the faces and voices of the movement. He's 22 years old now, and he says he is still angry. I'm just so angry for my my past self and the other young people that were with us and the young people who were marching with us around the country and around the world because it really should not be on kids to tell the adults to get their act together. It shouldn't be on kids to say, we deserve the right to survive math class. Our colleague Adrian Florido spoke to David Hogg today and asked him if, in the five years since he helped start March for Our Lives, whether it's gotten harder or easier to get young people involved in the cause. I think it's probably gotten easier, unfortunately. And the reason why I say that that's unfortunate is because the reason it's gotten easier is because gun violence has gotten worse. More people are affected by it now than when we started in 2018. And I guess... One of the non-unfortunate reasons why it's gotten easier to recruit young people is because I think March for Our Lives helps set a major cultural shift for our generation where, you know, it's kind of an expectation that you care 
about politics or that you care about the issues that are affecting us that are literally killing us in our communities and in our schools every day. And as a result of that, there are more people that want to be involved. We have young people running for state legislature, for example, like a young man named Jasper Martis in uh, the Michigan state legislature who got involved with politics when he was just, I think he's 17 years old with the first March for Our Lives. He went to MSU, graduated, and now after the shooting at MSU, he ran for office after graduating and now is one of the youngest state representatives in Michigan. It's people like Maxwell Frost who also are helping lead this change and inspiring our generation to step up and get involved on the inside too because he formerly worked with March for Our Lives as our first national organizing director and now he is the youngest member of Congress. Both fortunately and unfortunately, things have gotten easier. You have had some successes at the local and even federal level uh, uh, with gun control, but but not anything close to the kind of substantive gun control that you would like to see. What's been the most frustrating part of this work for you? How much time do you have? (laughs) Um, We have been historically very reactive. When there's a shooting, the country is enraged and people want to do something urgently and act now. We have to get out there before there is a shooting and show up regularly every single year. The gun lobby and gun rights activists show up every single year with a couple hundred people at state legislatures and they flood their call lines. They show up in all of the hearings and everything like that. And unless there's been a major shooting in the past year, that doesn't happen a lot of the time with our movement, not nearly as much as it should. And we need those parents who say to me, wow, my generation really messed up, but we're glad that you kids are here to save us. We need those parents to show up with us and not just say, okay, like the kids have it. We don't. We are young and we are feisty and we want change badly, but we can't do this alone. We need people of all ages and all backgrounds, races, ethnicities, and incomes to show up with us at state legislatures to help create that change proactively so that you don't become a gun violence prevention activist after you've lost your child or your brother or sister to gun violence. What's been the most gratifying part of this work for you? Last year, I was on kitchen cabinet calls in my dining hall every Thursday morning at 9 a.m. for Maxwell Frost. He was a long shot candidate. And 48 hours ago, I was in his office for the first time in Washington, D.C., in Congress. And I was there with Patricia and Manny Oliver, the parents of Joaquin Oliver, who died when he was 17 years old, when he was murdered in my high school. After his family, mind you, came here fleeing violence in Venezuela, to Parkland, only to have their son die. And they talked about how hard it is, obviously, going through what they went through and losing a child to gun violence, but how much hope at the same time it's given them to see Joaquin's legacy, as they talked about, live on in the activists of March for Our Lives and the movement and people like Maxwell now going into Congress. Because their whole philosophy from the beginning has been that Joaquin is not a victim, he's an activist. And to see them tearing up at the fact that now we're sitting in the youngest member of Congress's office, who is directly from March for Our Lives, that yes, this this work is very hard. There are many setbacks that we have, and it's going to take a long time to get through it. But I know if people like the Olivers can keep doing this, and thousands of other parents across the country in in a similar position to them can keep doing this, the rest of the movement can as well. I've been speaking with David Hogg, one of the founding members and a board member of March for Our Lives. Thanks for joining us. Of course. Thank you. 
Internal documents from the Department of Veterans Affairs show that black veterans are much less likely to get approved for benefits for conditions like PTSD. This information comes from a lawsuit brought by a black Vietnam veteran and a Yale Law Clinic. As NPR's Quill Lawrence reports, there's evidence the VA has been aware of this racial disparity for years. Richard Brookshire is with the Black Veterans Project. He was a combat medic in Afghanistan. In recent years, a whistleblower contacted him and confirmed what he'd been hearing, and there were documents. An internal report that was drawn up in 2017 showed that the VA began to look into racial disparities, um, that it looked at PTSD explicitly and, and, and found really stark racial disparities in PTSD denial rates faced by Black vets. This is a huge part of what VA does, decides if a veteran has PTSD or other injuries related to military service and then pays them disability. The document showed that non-Hispanic blacks who filed a claim for PTSD got rejected more than average by a solid 12 percentage points. In a recording shared with NPR, the whistleblower describes how this internal report was produced for senior VA officials in 2017. Then, Brookshire says, it was buried. And essentially, they stopped looking into the matter any further. They didn't look at any other disparities in any other area. At his monthly press conference this week, VA Secretary Dennis McDonough said he had not seen the draft report and didn't answer specific questions. He instead pointed to the VA's Equity Task Force, announced earlier this month, to address this exact problem. But he said the task force is still ramping up. And job number one for that team will be ensuring that every veteran is able to access the benefits and the care that he or she, that they have earned. VA is currently implementing the biggest benefits expansion in decades, the PACT Act, which covers toxic exposures during service. McDonough is concerned that black veterans might miss out. Black vets have served and sacrificed for this country in every conflict we fought, and particularly so in those conflicts covered by the PACT Act. Black veterans have historically faced higher rates of other-than-honorable discharge from the military, which can mean no VA benefits. Going back to World War II, they often couldn't access GI Bill, home loans, and college funds. But Brookshire says this kind of inequity is not ancient history. It's still happening now. But you're talking about tens of thousands of black veterans who were affected by these decisions just in the last few years, let alone when you talk about the decades of disparities that have persisted. The VA did not give a date for when the equity task force would be operational or when it would make its first recommendations. Quill Lawrence, NPR News. A big new attraction at the Houston Zoo is actually all about three tiny tortoise babies. What's unique is their dad is 90 years old. From the Texas Newsroom, Rob Salinas reports. But yes, the school children certainly love the lion. The lions are usually one of the biggest draws at the Houston Zoo. But this week, it was the 90-year-old turtle named Mr. Pickles, says Jackie Wallace. She's been fielding media calls for the zoo. So as I scroll through my emails, I'm seeing requests from Germany, from ABC World News Tonight, news outlets all over the world wanting to talk about the Pickles family. So the Pickles are a hit? The Pickles are a viral hit, yes. One could say that safely. The cause of this sensation is the fact that for the first time in his 90-year life, Mr. Pickles is a dad. He and Miss Pickles, who's a spry 53 by tortoise standards, had their first children together, but only because Melissa Hodges, the herpetology keeper, made a discovery. I couldn't believe it. I think I was 
in shock. That was October 7th. It was a night event at the zoo, and I happened to just walk to the tortoise habitat, and I saw her kicking some dirt around, and I saw, like, the small piece of egg. I knew it was her laying eggs, so once she finished, I let her walk away, take her time, and then I dug up the eggs that night. Had she not seen the eggs, then it's likely the birth of the three pickle children wouldn't have taken place. That's because the soil in their native Madagascar, where these radiant turtles live, is quite different from the soil in Houston. The eggs were moved to the reptile and amphibian house, where they received plenty of love and care. It paid off when dill, gherkin, and jalapeno hatched. Their birth is important because this turtle is on a list of critically endangered species. Hodges says it's great Mr. Pickles' DNA is passed on. It's unusual because Mr. Pickles, at 90 years old, he is number one in the AZA stud book. Um, so Wait, there's a book? It's a it's a stud book that keeps like records of their genetics and everything and all AZA zoos and facilities and the ra radiated tortoises one. He is number one. The pickle babies won't be on display for a few years as they grow up a bit. But Mr. Pickles, the zoo's new stud, is just a short walk from the lions. For NPR News, I'm Rob Salinas in Houston. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR on Wall Street. Stocks rose across the board today. The Dow gained four-tenths of a percent. S&P grew by more than a half percent. The Nasdaq picked up three-tenths of a percent. Details coming up at 6.30 on Marketplace. The average cost of home heating oil in Massachusetts continues to drop. A State Department of Energy Resources survey shows the average price this week at $4.15 a gallon. That's down five cents a gallon from last week. 72 cents lower a gallon than it was one year ago. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bass, Berry & Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. Looks like Harvard is out of the men's NCAA ice hockey tournament. Harvard lost to Ohio State this afternoon 8-1. to uh, Merrimack College takes on Quinnipiac at 5.30 today. Yesterday, Boston University advanced to the quarterfinals by beating Western Michigan 5-1. to College hockey's championship game will be played April 8th in Tampa, Florida. This is WBUR. Celtics return home from a long road trip tonight. The tip-off against the Indiana Pacers at 7 o'clock. Red Sox host the Atlanta Braves tonight at 6.05 in spring training play. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Huntington with Clyde's. Nominated for five 2022 Tonys, including Best Play, the joyous comedy and Broadway hit Clyde's comes to the newly renovated and beautifully restored Huntington Theater, March 24th through April 23rd. Written by two-time Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright Lynn Nottage. HuntingtonTheater.org. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. If you're used to watching TV when and how you want, well, you can now do the same thing with listening to the radio. You can pause and rewind live radio with the new WBUR app. Download it at the App Store today. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Indeed, designed to be an all-in-one hiring platform with tools to help businesses attract, screen, and interview candidates they need to fill all their job openings. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, 
a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at AlignProbiotics.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Juana Summers. On Fallout Boy's 2018 album Mania, experimentation was the point. Vocalist and guitarist Patrick Stump says he was playing around with technology. How much you can bend the sounds and distort the sounds and make them into different things, you know, make guitars into synthesizers and make voices into, you know, into guitars or whatever. Just, just make things weird. The band's bassist and lyricist Pete Wentz says the album was sometimes purposely polarizing, and that provided some artistic direction for their new album, So Much for Stardust. When I look at artists whose art I love, like sometimes after they make something polarizing, maybe the next thing they do is something that's more recognizably the, that artist. Patrick Stump says getting back to that sound meant a welcome return to the basics in the recording studio. I really missed having to tune a guitar for an inordinate amount of time or having to place microphones. Dialing into that sound also netted the band their first ever number one on Billboard's alternative airplay chart decades into their career with the lead single, Love From The Other Side. I want to ask you about another song on the record, the song What a Time to Be Alive, because it has this like almost disco vibe to it. But the lyrics, if you listen closely, are a lot gloomier. We're ready to live stream the apocalypse, for example. And later in the song, you say that you've got the quarantine blues. So how much is this song and really the whole record a product of that isolation that we all lived through during the pandemic? It's interesting because, right, like the the pandemic and, and quarantining was like such a big part of everyone pretty much on the planet's life. But I think we were nervous to be like heavily referential of it in the way that like, you know, it just feels like there is a lot of art and it really cements it as like, this happened at this exact moment, like it doesn't let the art, you know. Yeah, it's the sedimentary like, rock in the, you know, where you can see that big line in the stone, you know, on the, on the side of the mountain. Yeah, and so I feel like we, like Quarantine Blues is maybe kind of the only real reference, but like, I love the idea of the, the saddest New Year's song ever. Like you're like, <laughs> that was like the worst year of all time. What a Time to Be Alive had this just double meaning where I saw that line and it just inspired me. I was like, yeah, I want to make the kind of song that you play at a wedding and don't really pay attention to how absolutely bleak it is. It is, it is, just, it is just miserable. I wanted like the darkest um, party song. I know you all are about to be kicking off a major tour. How does it feel to be getting back out there to be performing this music in front of people? 
I get pretty stressed about leaving, just like being with your family and stuff. So I'm excited about it because I think we we put that intention into the record that like the art has to be worth going out and touring it and taking it around the world. So and on that level, I'm pretty excited and I'm pretty excited about the stage show we're going to do. What about you, Patrick? How are you feeling about getting back on tour? Uh, I'm always anxious. Um, we kind of do go a little bit overboard in the studio sometimes, you know, uh, in terms of the layers of things and the counter melodies and the parts and the harmonies. And it's like the record as it's recorded is very much, you know, the hero version of the song. And, and you should aim for it to sound like that. You have to figure out some way to translate that live and still achieve something that satiates the people that love that record. There's also this sort of quirky interlude on the album, a song called The Pink Seashell, which features an Ethan Hawke monologue from Reality Bites, the movie. What made you want to include that on this album? I always loved this monologue. But then I realized, I realized that the shell's empty. There's no point to any of this. It's all just a random lottery of It stands out from Reality Bites to me because this feeling creeps up inside me all the time. Like I always, you know, I listen to music and I make art and I go to therapy and I hang out and present with my kids and play sports and it all that stuff kind of makes it go away but like it creeps up inside just the idea of like maybe there aren't any answers like maybe maybe it's just like you're just here cuz and I sit back and I ride my own mill the day that this album was announced, your lead guitarist Joe Troman announced that he'd be stepping away from the band for an indefinite period of time for his mental health. And I, I have to imagine that's been a really big change for you all. Yeah, it's been uh, weird because, you know, you, we miss him tremendously. Um, so that's it's very strange to go out and promote something that he was, you know, fully a part of without him. So that's a little uncomfortable, to be honest. But I think he had kind of, in a lot of ways, suffered in private. He was anxious that he was letting us down or something. And mm. I was like, dude, like, we've done this together for, you know, 22 years. You know, we're in your corner. And, uh, you know, we've been checking in with him regularly. So he's still very much in all of the conversations. You know, he's on all the emails. He replies to everything. He's like part of it. But... He doesn't physically get to be there. He's still part of the game with us, you know? Yeah. Um, as you mentioned, you all have been doing this together for decades at this point. How are you thinking about this phase of your career and where you want to go and grow next? I mean, I feel really lucky. Like, none of it was supposed to happen this way, I don't think, you know? Like, from us going on TRL as this, like, kind of terrible weird punk band and you know like we we got shot into this like vortex that i think it's very easy to like get chewed up and kind of spit out and i think that a big thing that i'm proud of is that we just like we came out the other side you know and we we like survived it yeah i do want to say too that i'm not particularly interested in in just resting creatively and going out and being a business, you know, like and going out and 
just playing playing all the old hits, you know? You know, we'll do that. But I also really am driven by creating something new. There's nothing more exciting to me than when Pete sends me lyrics. When he sent, when I open that email, that's how the tour starts, you know what I mean? Patrick Stump and Pete Wentz of Fall Out Boy. Their latest album, So Much for Stardust, is out today. Thank you all so much for talking with us. Thanks for having us. Thank you. This is NPR News. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Stanhope Framers, Back Bay and Somerville, celebrating 50 years of museum-quality custom frames for individuals, artists, and businesses. StanhopeFramers.com. And Zevin Asset Management, committed to impact investing and socially responsible portfolios for 25 years. Learn how to invest sustainably at Zevin.com. I'm Rupa Shanoi, host of WBUR's Morning Edition. If you aren't an early riser like me, no problem. Download the new and improved WBUR app and never miss a minute of live radio. You can pause and rewind Morning Edition or start from the top of the hour, all on your schedule. Listen to all your favorite shows when and how you want. Get the new WBUR app in your app store today. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. On Capitol Hill, the House passed a bill today that aims to increase so-called parental rights in public schools across the nation. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports the Republican-backed legislation is likely to fuel the ongoing debate over what's being taught in classrooms. The bill includes provisions that would require public schools to make certain information available online, including class curriculums and a list of library books. House Majority Leader Steve Scalise says the legislation gives parents a seat at the table. If you've got to be concerned about what's happening in your kid's classroom and the school doesn't want you to see what's happening in your kid's classroom, you really ought to be alarmed. But every parent ought to have that right. Congressional Democrats argue that many of the proposed rights contained in the bill already exist under local and state law. The legislation is facing a roadblock in the Democratic-led Senate, where it would need 60 votes to pass. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. The Pentagon says American forces retaliated in Syria after a suspected Iranian-made drone killed a U.S. contractor yesterday and wounded five American troops. The U.S. quickly responded with its own airstrikes targeting facilities used by groups affiliated with Iran's Revolutionary Guard. Here's what Defense Department spokesman Brigadier General Pat Ryder told reporters today when asked about escalating tensions across the Middle East. We do not see conflict with Iran. We don't seek escalation with Iran. But the strikes that we took last night were intended to send a very clear message that we will take the protection of our personnel seriously and that we will respond quickly and decisively if they are threatened. President Biden reiterated that stance today during his visit to Canada, saying the U.S. does not seek conflict with Iran, but is prepared to act forcefully to protect our people. Stocks finished modestly higher on Wall Street to end the week. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts State Auditor Diana DeZoglio says she will conduct an audit of the state legislature as planned. Her comment came this afternoon after Speaker of the House Ron Mariano issued a statement today that DeZoglio does not have the legal authority to audit the legislature. 
Speaker Mariano says her plan runs contrary to provisions in the Massachusetts Constitution and that the public already has full access to the House's financial information. Desaglio says she's not asking for permission. She says she'll push ahead with the audit to help increase transparency, accountability, and equity for people in the state. Advocates are pushing the MBTA to reduce fares for low-income riders. The T says it would need $5 million just to develop such a program and tens of millions of dollars each year to cover expenses. Those projections assume eligible riders would pay a half-price fare. Lee Motsweta is chair of the Public Transit Public Good Coalition. He told the MBTA Board of Directors that it would greatly benefit families who rely on public transportation. We're talking about 60,000 families in the Commonwealth saving over $30 million. This is about racial justice. It's about the right to access and mobility. It's about having pride in a public transit system that is working to rebuild trust with the riding public. Governor Maura Healey has included $5 million in startup money for the program in her proposed budget. An airline passenger faces up to six months in prison and a fine after pleading guilty to assaulting two women on a red-eye flight from Los Angeles to Boston. The Modesto, California man admitted in federal court this week that he assaulted the women during a flight last May. The victims told flight attendants they were groped by the passenger sitting near them. The man was arrested when the plane landed at Logan. Major League Baseball is dropping its request to trademark the word Boston on behalf of the Red Sox. Red Sox owner John Henry says the trademark application was initiated last week by the league and not by the Sox. He says the application was withdrawn today at the request of the team. Henry says MLB's intent was to protect the club's use of Boston on its apparel, not an attempt to prevent others from using the city's name. And Boston's biggest gaming convention is underway now at the South Boston Convention and Exhibition Center. The PAX East Festival of Gaming attracts thousands of gamers every year. Organizer Ryan Harpman says PAX East has everything from the hottest new games to family-friendly game boards. You'll have parents that are, you know, in their 30s and gaming their whole life, and they're bringing their kids who are five, six, seven, only even older than that, who are just getting into it. PAX East will run through Sunday. Celtics have returned to Boston finally. Tonight, they tip off against the Indiana Pacers at 7 o'clock. Red Sox host the Atlanta Braves tonight at 6.05 in spring training play. And in the forecast, tonight should be partly cloudy and dry, about 34 degrees. Tomorrow should gradually turn mostly cloudy and wet. Showers in the late afternoon tomorrow, only about 40 degrees. Sunday should start off damp, but then the bulk of the day should be sunny, milder, could inch to the mid-50s, then sunshine could come back for the first part of next week. 52 degrees now in Boston at 536. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from iDrive with Remote PC, providing remote access to PCs, Macs, and servers from anywhere. Designed to assist those working from home. More at remotepc.com. And from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. President Biden was in Ottawa today. Usually U.S. presidents visit the capital of Canada early in their terms. But in a speech to the Canadian Parliament, Biden tried to make up for the delay by talking about the close ties between the two neighbors. And he even made a joke about Toronto's beleaguered hockey team. I have to say, I like your teams except the Leafs. 
Ahead of the speech, Biden and Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau talked through some difficult issues. NPR White House correspondent Tamara Keith has been watching the leaders and joins us now. Hey, Tam. Hi, Elsa. So I understand the two of them came to an agreement on migration issues today. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, that was definitely the biggest news out of the trip. Both countries have been struggling with a dramatic wave of migrants arriving at the border, both borders. And it's been a challenge for both leaders. We've reported a lot on the political pressure that Republicans are putting on President Biden. And it's also been a political challenge for Trudeau from opposition politicians. Um, They've pressed Trudeau to bring up a treaty with the U.S. that was largely blamed for increasing illegal crossings. And he did that. Um, The U.S. and Canada agreed to make some changes that will allow both countries to turn away more migrants at unofficial border crossings. And it specifically allows Canada to send asylum seekers who cross the border at these unofficial crossing points back to the U.S. And the U.S. can do the same. Um, uh, This includes um, the Roxham Road uh, between New York and Quebec. Um, Canada will also accept an additional 15,000 migrants uh, per year from the Western Hemisphere. That includes Haiti, Colombia and Ecuador, uh, those migrants seeking asylum. Okay, And I know that another issue that the leaders were set to discuss was the violence in Haiti. Did they come to any agreement on how to address the situation there? This one definitely seems to be a work in progress. The White House has been pressuring Canada to lead a military force to help stabilize Haiti, which has just been gripped by violence. Gangs have essentially taken over the capital and parts of the nation risk falling into famine. Uh, But after initially being open to the idea of leading the effort, Trudeau has been backing away from that, saying outside intervention never really works. Um, He did say today that Canada would contribute $100 million to support police forces in Haiti. And he also announced new sanctions. Uh, Biden said that this is a difficult circumstance and the best thing that concerned nations can do is improve the capacity of police departments in Haiti to gain control and break the grip of gangs. Uh, He said any decision about military force would have to be made with the United Nations and the government of Haiti. And so uh, while it isn't off the table, it's definitely on the back burner. Back burner. Okay. well, I I saw that in their joint press conference later, they got into the whole issue of TikTok, which has been in the headlines here in the U.S. all week. What did we learn? The Canadian government has followed the lead of the Biden administration and banned TikTok from government devices. The company is uh, owned by a Chinese company. Company. Uh, the, the app is made by a Chinese company. And in the case of Trudeau, he has teenage children. And that meant that they had to take the app off of their phones, <laughs> this very addictive app. Um, and he said they were a bit frustrated with this, but that he was relieved because he has a lot of concerns about the safety of the app. Um, it's not clear whether there, uh, there could be a broader ban in the works for TikTok, uh, but the U.S. government is believed to be weighing that right now unless the parent company, which is based in China, spins off TikTok. That is NPR White House correspondent Tamara Keith. Thank you so much, Tam. You're welcome. HBO's hit dark comedy Succession returns for its fourth and final season on Sunday. NPR TV critic Eric Deggan says it is an impressively funny and ambitious start to a landmark season featuring a foul-mouthed family running a huge media company. There is a lot that happens in the first four episodes of Succession's final season, and it's tough to talk about any of it without dropping huge spoilers. 
but I'll try. So let's start with this. The show paints a devastating portrait of the three youngest adult children of Rupert Murdoch-style media magnate Logan Roy. As the season begins, the kids, or sibs as they are sometimes called, are on the outs with their old man, aiming to create a new media company on their own. But while sifting through a bunch of terrible marketing ideas, they're mostly dropping a lot of empty jargon, especially Roman Roy, played by Kieran Culkin, and Jeremy Strong's Kendall Roy, who speaks first. The 100 is Substack meets Masterclass meets The Economist meets The New Yorker. I feel like we said iconic and you guys are leaning ironic. Meanwhile, in another location, Logan Roy is holding a birthday party. Cousin Greg, played by Nicholas Braun, has brought a new date to the event. This doesn't sit well with Logan's personal assistant slash girlfriend, Carrie, played by Zoe Winters. Greg tries to explain. I brought a date. That's okay, right? What's her name? What's her full name? Bridget. Is it random? Is it random? Is she from the apps, Greg? I really like her. Oh. I, I might have fallen for her. Oh, that's great. How many previous dates have you had? Um, Carrie, I... You know, I'm not, I'm not sure this is appropriate. And let's not forget Connor Roy, played by Alan Ruck, Logan's oldest child who's running for president and polling at a not-so-impressive 1%. He tells cousin Greg he's worried he might have to spend more money on advertising to keep his polling up. Fear is, in these last days, uh, it could get squeezed. Squeezed down? Mm -hmm. From one? Because that's the lowest number uh, No, there's, you know, decimals. It gets awfully spendy to get aggressive. Like how much? Like uh, another 100 mil. 100 million. Damn. As always, Succession offers loads of expertly crafted dry humor while showing a family isolated and infantilized by its enormous wealth and emotional disconnection. The children may spend millions to launch a media company or political campaign, but you get the sense they couldn't actually pull off any initiative of their own if they didn't have an army of flunkies to actually execute it. And Logan Roy, played by Brian Cox, is the most isolated of all. Fans will recall at the end of the third season, Logan renegotiated his divorce settlement to take power from his children within his company. With the three sibs now united against him, Logan is grumping through life like a lion with a thorn in his paw, unable to admit he misses his children and demanding obsequious underlings entertain him. Come on, roast me. Mm, give me a drubbing. Frank, start. Be funny. Not really my thing, Chief. Oh, you don't think I can take it? I mean, I can. You, the thing about Logan Roy is he's a tough old nut. <laughs> oh, Christ, shit. Caesar. The real drama of succession often plays at the margins. How a character reacts after an embarrassing moment or acidly tart put down. And the cast reveals some amazing acting chops here, especially after a huge event in the third episode, which changes everything. I won't detail it here, but it does reset all the relationships, revealing that succession isn't just a satire of how the whims and dysfunctions of the wealthy affect our world. It's the story of a deeply disordered family that somehow still struggles to find each other through the steepest obstacles that wealth and the world can supply. I'm Eric Jackson.
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. When the MLB's Seattle Mariners made the playoffs in 2022, a spotlight suddenly fell on an NBA team, the Sacramento Kings. After the Mariners' success, the Kings assumed the dubious national title of major pro sports team with the longest postseason drought. But after a breakout season, Sacramento is about to rid itself of that title. NPR's Tom Goldman reports the success has Kings fans literally beaming. Listen closely to Mike Brown, the Sacramento Kings' first-year head coach, as he explained what his team did wrong in a loss earlier this week. One of the things a guy's going to have to understand is come playoff time, the best shot's an open shot because those are going to be hard to You hear how casually he threw out playoff time as if it's a foregone conclusion? That's because it almost is. 16 years in the playoff desert are about to end thanks to a season filled with moments like this. They open up the floor, Fox, going to go to work, pulls up for the winner, got it, D-Fox with some dynamite! That game-winning shot by the Kings all-star guard De'Aaron Fox happened last week in Chicago. Back in Sacramento, Corey and Joshua Silva were at a restaurant next to the Kings' home arena, Golden One Center. Seconds after the win, the Silver brothers scurried away from their table and went hunting for the beam. I caught up with them as they stared up at the suddenly illuminated sky above the arena. Describe it. Uh, a bright blue pole. Uh, <laughs> Shoot straight up. Purple. That's purple. Right, purple. I look at this yeah. guy. Purple. Just bright. I couldn't believe how high it goes. Yeah. King's color, man. Yeah. <laughs> Forgive Corey Silva's blue instead of purple mistake. Although a lifelong Kings fan, the 32-year-old Silva was excited seeing the laser beam in person for the first time. The victory beam, powered by six lasers and approved by the Federal Aviation Administration, was introduced this season to celebrate every Kings victory. And it started a ritual chant when the wins were imminent. The chance. Raining down from Golden One Center. Light the beam. As chants go, light the beam is a lot more fun than the one heard at Kings Games more than a decade ago. Here We Stay became a rallying cry during a several years long saga that threatened the team's future in Sacramento. The Kings wanted an upgraded arena, they couldn't stop losing, and owners considered moving the team, prompting fans like Rich Bachman to say in 2011 he was bracing for the worst. I guess we'll come back for the rodeo or the truck pull or something like that and then no more Kings. But the team survived. Loyal fans rallied, a new owner and city government secured funding for what would become Golden One. It also helped to have former NBA commissioner, the late David Stern, on Sacramento's side. Brian McIntyre was the league's head of communications during Stern's tenure. I think he was, his resolve was hardened by what happened up in Seattle with the Sonics leaving. And he didn't want to see the same thing happen in Sacramento. Golden One Center's address is 500 David Stern Walk, a permanent appreciation. And finally, all the work to keep the Kings in town is being repaid with a playoff drought-breaking season. Last year's trade for seven-footer DeMontis Sabonis combined with Fox's sterling play have turned the Kings into the top-scoring team in the league. Just a few more wins and or other team losses will clinch a playoff spot and pass the postseason drought baton to the end. NFL's New York Jets and hockey's Buffalo Sabres. Both are at 11 seasons and counting. Maybe 
They need a beam. Tom Goldman, NPR News, Sacramento. And you're listening to All Things Considered. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on Marketplace this evening at 6.30, bank examiners warn Silicon Valley Bank about issues with risk management but decided not to notify depositors. If the public were to be made aware of an issue, you or I came to the conclusion that, well, there's an issue here. Maybe I'll just go look at another bank. But if everybody decides to do that, it brings down the bank. I'll look at how bank examiners do their job. That's coming up on Marketplace again. It starts at 6.30. And in about 15 minutes, Massachusetts U.S. Senator Elizabeth Warren renews her call for tighter controls to help restore confidence in the banking system. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.com. Imagining NPR without Sylvia Pajoli veers toward nearly the impossible, but after 41 years, she's hanging up her headphones. Listen tomorrow morning to 90.9 WBUR to hear Sylvia talk about a career spanning uh, four decades and more. Sylvia Pajoli, a name synonymous with NPR. That's tomorrow on 90.9 WBUR. Nice evening ahead, partly cloudy, down around freezing. Tomorrow, some sunshine in the morning, then increasing clouds. Should have rain tomorrow afternoon. Sunshine, though, on Sunday. WBUR supporters include the Umbrella Arts Center with Middleton Heights, the tale of a Filipino family pursuing the American dream. March 31st to April 23rd, theumbrellaarts.org. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Local journalism is the backbone of vibrant, engaged local communities. When local journalism disappears, civic engagement goes with it. WBUR's journalism is strong, but we don't take it for granted, and we hope you won't either. Our future is not guaranteed. We need your monthly contribution to keep our journalism and our local communities strong. Give today at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Elsa Chang. Seeing the members of the Queen's cartoonists perform live is truly a spectacle. There's jazz, cartoons, a wide range of musical instruments, and all kinds of noise-making props and shenanigans. At our shows, we play in synchronization with the films being projected on stage. So we take old classic cartoons and contemporary animated films and we perform the soundtracks live while you get to watch the films. Uh, We also do a lot of the sound effects from those films. And there's elements of comedy and sort of like a musical circus. Joel Pearson, a composer and pianist, formed the band in 2014. And I had a whole list of kind of crazy ideas. And um, this was the one that I picked, looking for an intersection between the golden age of animation and the golden age of jazz. When the band goes on tour and sets up on stage, I want it to look like there's 30 people that are going to come out, and then there's only six. (laughs) One of our favorite films is a 1930 cartoon called The Haunted Ship. When we recorded it, we start with the credits, playing the original music. Um, There's some sound effects, some whistles, and other kind of funny things that happen. The action starts with a cat and a dog flying an airplane. We have uh, the instruments in the band uh, recreating what's happening on screen. The drummer plays a bunch of percussion when the cat uh, plays the airplane like a drum set. (laughs) Then the cat starts playing a trumpet, so our trumpet player plays the trumpet line. 
Then they run into a storm, so we do this like thunder and lightning sounds. And so the cat and the dog are rowing their airplane like a boat in the rain, and one gets hit by lightning. And so then we make a bunch of noises, you know, like the lightning sounds. And eventually, a bolt of lightning chases the cat and the dog through the air before ultimately getting into a fight uh, inside of a cloud, and they sink into the ocean. The band's influences are jazz composers and jazz musicians, but a lot of those musicians worked with classical music as well. I had this idea to maybe take Mozart's Requiem and recompose it for a jazz ensemble. And uh, Mozart had a, a very interesting sense of humor, so I were sort of trying to use maybe some things that he would have thought were funny as a jumping off point. The main goal of the band is to get people into the concert hall that wouldn't usually go. So a lot of people would hear the term jazz band or jazz concert and say, oh, that's not really for me, I don't like that music. So we're using the angle of cartoons and animated films to kind of bridge that gap to say, well, maybe you don't listen to a lot of jazz, but you like cartoons, right? And you can come and you can see Popeye the Sailor Man and Betty Boop and all these characters. And we're accompanying them and we're you know doing the sound effects and doing all this stuff um, to create this fun concert. That's a way to get people in. That was Joel Pearson of the Queen's Cartoonists. Their latest album will be out this spring. In the fall of 2019, the opera world suddenly lost one of its greatest voices. Soprano Jessie Norman. She died unexpectedly at age 74. She was a perfectionist who left numerous recordings in the vaults. Now, some of that unheard music is being released in a three-volume set, and our reviewer, NPR's Tom Heisinger, has been reveling in it. Jessie Norman, The Unreleased Masters, is an opera lover's treasure trove of superb singing. Few voices in history gave us such Grand Canyon opulence, vastness, and color. That's from Richard Strauss's four last songs. Norman's 1982 commercial recording is unrivaled, but this live version from seven years later is swifter and benefits from moving that voluptuous voice more forward in the mix. It is bewildering, but Norman never approved the recording. It was to be paired on an album with this, Wagner's Wesendonk Leader. Listen how she spins out a thread of pure gold on a single word, Vergluhen, which means fading. Yes, that voice belongs to the little girl from Augusta, Georgia, who dared sit in the whites-only section at the train station and who became a towering figure in the opera world. 
Jessie Norman was a fearless woman of conscience. She carefully sculpted her career, choosing music, like perfectly tailored clothing, to fit her majestic instrument. Here's a good example. In Ravishing Music by Hector Berlioz, Norman portrays a frustrated Cleopatra. That music was supposed to be on an album in the early 90s, depicting three historic queens in music by Haydn, Berlioz, and Benjamin Britten. But Norman didn't like the studio mix, which was corrected for this release. Here she is in Britten's cantata Phaedra as the queen of Athens who decides to poison herself to the accompaniment of a creepy harpsichord. Jesse Norman's Mount Everest was the lead role in Wagner's massive Tristan und Isolde. Knowing she would never sing it on stage, she headed to the recording studio in 1998. But the sessions grew contentious, and she gave up. Still, there's 67 minutes of excerpts on this set, including the final glorious Liebestod. Although Jesse Norman didn't officially approve all the recordings in this set, her family eventually did. And for that, we are grateful to be able to hear her magnificent voice soar once again. The album is Jesse Norman, The Unreleased Masters. Our reviewer is NPR's Tom Heisinger. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. And from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their clients' best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Direct Tire and Auto Service. A dealer alternative, your local mechanic and tire dealer, serving Newton, Watertown, and the surrounding communities. DirectTire.com. I'm here now host Robin Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
U.S. warplanes have carried out airstrikes in eastern Syria after a drone attack killed a U.S. contractor. The Pentagon believes the drone was of Iranian origin. Our story is coming up on this Friday, March 24th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, Massachusetts U.S. Senator Elizabeth Warren renews her call for tighter controls on the banking system. Congress still has a job to do here as well to tighten up the regulations, but the Fed could act literally today. Also ahead, family members who lost loved ones to lethal police violence. Families can hold police departments, police officers accountable when they unjustly brutalize and murder our brothers and sisters. It's 6.01. News headlines are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. U.S. troops in Syria have come under attack for a second time in as many days as part of an exchange of fire with militants. As NPR's Greg Myrie reports, the Pentagon says the militants are backed by Iran. In the latest attack, militants fired 10 rockets at a U.S. base in eastern Syria, but no one was hurt. The Pentagon says this incident, like one a day earlier, was launched by fighters armed by Iran. One U.S. contractor was killed and five U.S. troops injured in the first attack carried out by a drone. The U.S. responded with airstrikes that reportedly killed a number of militants. Brigadier General Pat Ryder is the Pentagon spokesman. With Iran, we don't seek escalation with Iran, but the strikes that we took last night were intended to send a very clear message. The U.S. has about 900 troops in Syria, whose mission is to prevent the reemergence of the Islamic State. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Washington. President Biden, meanwhile, also waited on the U.S. retaliatory actions following the attacks in Syria. The president in Ottawa expressing condolences for the U.S. contractor who was killed and others who were wounded. But he also said the U.S. is prepared to do whatever is needed to defend American interests. Make no mistake, the United States does not, does not emphasize, seek conflict with Iran. But be prepared for us to act forcefully, protect our people. That's exactly what happened last night. The latest exchanges do threaten stability in the region, though upending efforts to de-escalate tensions in the Middle East. The Department of Veterans Affairs says it is working to improve benefits for black veterans. NPR's Quill Lawrence reports black vets more often get rejected for disability claims. VA Secretary Dennis McDonough says black veterans have a lower rate of getting their service-related disabilities accepted by the VA. And maybe as a result, they are less likely to even apply for benefits. So to every black veteran out there, we will eliminate disparities. We will earn your trust. We will do right by you. So please give us another shot and apply for your benefits today. Internal VA documents show the department has been aware of racial bias in benefit decisions since at least 2017. McDonough has announced a task force to address the issue within VA, but the group hasn't started working yet. Quill Lawrence, NPR News. An executive who serves on the board overseeing the New York Federal Reserve is warning today of potentially systemic problems in the real estate finance market and calling on the industry to work with authorities to avoid things getting out of hand. Scott Reschler, who in addition to his New York Fed board role, is also CEO of a large property management and development firm, saying on Twitter today, $1.5 trillion in commercial real estate debt is set to mature in three years. Reschler citing a need of flexibility on the part of regulators. On Wall Street today, stocks closed higher. The Dow is up 132 points. This is NPR. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts State Auditor Diana DeZoglio says she's moving ahead with her audit of the state legislature. The vow from the auditor follows House Speaker Ron Mariano's statement earlier today that DeZoglio doesn't have the legal authority to audit the legislature. Mariano says the House and Senate are protected from an outside audit through the state constitution and that the public already has access to the House's financial information. DeZoglio says she will proceed with the audit to help increase transparency accountability, and equity for people in the state. Massachusetts U.S. Senator Elizabeth Warren says Congress needs to act to avoid other bank failures similar to what happened at Silicon Valley Bank. Here's WBUR's Amanda Beland. Warren is calling for a return to stronger regulations on banks that have assets totaling between $100 and $250 billion. That's how big the failed Silicon Valley Bank was. Those larger banks benefited from the 2018 rollback of regulations that were implemented following the 2008 banking crisis. This is part of the reason that I, along with some other senators, are calling on the Fed right now to tighten down on the regulations that they spent the last five years loosening and to go back and do tough supervision over these banks. Warren says Congress needs to provide stability for the markets and restore confidence in banks. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amanda Beland. With 27 percent of subway tracks under speed restrictions, an advocacy group is calling on the MBTA to provide more information on the slowdowns. Jared Johnson is the executive director of Transit Matters. The MBTA's new dashboard shows in real time where track issues are forcing trains to proceed with caution. Johnson says riders need to know how long slow zones will be in place. He says riders are paying the price for the T's failings. When someone is late for work because of a drop bus trip and they lose out on wages, a low-income worker who works hourly or a parent who's struggling has to pay, you know, an extra fee because they're late picking up their child, they don't care. They don't care about larger trends. They care about the fact that they need reliable service to get to where they're going. Two weeks ago, the T's interim general manager ordered the speed restrictions after finding discrepancies with paperwork the authority filed with state regulators. The T says the slowdowns will continue until all track defects are corrected. And the death of a passenger on a private jet from New Hampshire was not caused by turbulence, as first suspected. The National Transportation Safety Board reported today that pilots disconnected a system that's used to stabilize the plane. The Maryland woman was fatally injured when the aircraft violently bucked up and down. The safety board says the pilots were following a checklist in response to several cockpit warnings. It was not clear if the woman was belted in her seat or moving around the cabin. The aircraft was forced to divert to Hartford, Connecticut. In the forecast, partly cloudy skies tonight, cooler than it has been, about 34 degrees. Tomorrow should top out at just 40, clouding up during the day. We should have rain a few hours before sunset tomorrow. Then Sunday, nice sunshine gradually moving in. Gusty winds, temperatures in the mid-50s. 51 degrees now in Boston. It's 608. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, supporting creative people and effective institutions committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. More information is at macfound.org. 
on a Friday. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. The past 36 hours have seen an escalating tit-for-tat series of attacks in Syria. On one side, U.S. forces, and on the other, Iranian-backed militias. Today, U.S. warplanes attacked a facility used by those militias in retaliation for a self-destructing drone that killed an American contractor and wounded five U.S. service members yesterday. For more, we're joined now by NPR's Tom Bowman. Hey, Tom. Hey, also. So what is the latest at this point? Well, U.S. intelligence says that it was an Iranian drone that hit this American base in northeast Syria near the city of Hasaka. And besides killing that American contractor, two of the five soldiers had to be medically evacuated, though I'm told their injuries are not life-threatening. Now, U.S. says uh, there have been 78 attacks in Syria by these Iranian-backed militias in the last several years, including through drones, rockets, and mortars. And this is the first American death, they say. Now, Mm. two U.S. uh, F-15 aircraft attacked the Iranian militia facility nearby. There are a number of deaths, according to reports, and the U.S. is still assessing the damage. And also, the U.S. has recovered pieces of the drone and are now analyzing them. And Elsa, just today, another attack. The U.S. says 10 rockets were fired at another American base in Syria. All the uh, rockets fell short but wounded four Syrian civilians. Let me make sure I understand. You said that there have been about 78 attacks by these Iranian militias on U.S. forces in Syria in the past several years. I mean, we hear a lot about ISIS in Syria, but not much about Iranian-backed militias, right? What are they even doing there? Well, of course, Iran is supporting the Syrian regime of Bashar al-Assad, and these militias have been targeting U.S. forces for some time. Of course, next door in Iraq, there are also these militia groups that occasionally target U.S. facilities there. And just yesterday, the top officer for the region, uh, American General Eric Carrilla, talked with lawmakers about Iran's military capabilities, including UAVs or unmanned aerial vehicles. Let's listen. Today, Iran possesses the largest and most diverse missile arsenal in the Middle East with thousands of ballistic and cruise missiles. Iran also maintains the largest and most capable UAV force. Iran's vast and deeply resourced proxy forces spread instability throughout the region and threaten our regional partners. So even though it seems like the Islamic State or ISIS has been defeated, it sounds like both Iraq and Syria are still pretty dangerous places for American forces or contractors right now. Is that right? Oh, absolutely. There are some 1,000 U.S. troops in Syria working with Kurdish forces and going after the remnants of ISIS and also facing these Iranian militias, as we were just talking about. I was in northeast Syria a couple of years back, and there were also members of the Russian mercenary group, uh, the, the Wagner Group, who attacked an American base there. Mm-hmm. And next door in Iraq, uh, U.S. forces are still partnering with Iraqi counterterrorism troops to, again, go after what remains of ISIS. Just last month, Elsa, there were some three dozen raids, partnered raids with Iraqi forces, and about 200 last year. So you're right, the Islamic State has not been defeated, but the U.S. will be fighting, it looks like, not only ISIS, but Iranian militias for quite some time. That is NPR's Tom Bowman. Thank you, Tom. You're welcome. NPR sent layoff notices to about a tenth of its employees this week. The network also announced the cancellation of four podcasts. It's a wrenching time here in the newsroom due to what NPR's chief executive calls an existential threat, a projected revenue shortfall of more than $30 million for the year. NPR media correspondent David Folkenflik is covering this. Hey, David. 
Hey, Mary Louise. All right. Tell us more about who and what NPR is cutting. Well, you mentioned the four podcasts, and some of them are pretty familiar to a lot of folks. Invisibilia, Louder Than a Riot, about hip-hop. You have uh, Rough Translation, which is uh, a conduit for coverage of international affairs, and everyone and their mom, uh, comic uh, podcast spun out of Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Yeah. Uh, roughly 100 people in all are being separated from NPR, that is, giving their walking papers across all divisions, although, as our chief executive, John Lansing, said, this is not an across-the-board cut. They're trying to be targeted in what they did. Yeah. What what are they saying are driving these specific choices? Well, among other things, they said they wanted to get away from what they called seasonal podcasts and make sure that what they're offering is more frequent and dependable, sustained. If you think about Embedded, an investigative podcast that was kind of periodic. Now it's going to be at least 36 weeks of the year. There'll be fresh new things. Our investigative narrative you know, enterprise work will appear there. They said they want to protect radio shows. They, John Lansing, our chief executive, talked about wanting to protect the journalism, and he wanted to protect what he called his North Star, that is broadening our audiences, our appeal to a broader demographic, more diverse, not only our offerings, but the people producing that content so that we could have audiences for generations to come. Um, I'll circle back to that. But but one more thing John Lansing has said, our CEO Lansing has said, is that NPR is facing an existential threat. How urgent is it? How bad? Well, look, NPR is, according to PodTrack, the nation's third largest producer of podcasts. We've had huge growth and we've put resources into that. And that's been enormous for us. We, For a time, we had more corporate underwriting or advertising revenue coming in from podcasts than from radios. But then that ad market for podcasting collapsed. We had a shortfall pretty quickly this year. 15 to 20 million became $30 million budget deficit on a $300 million uh, budget. And it's growing. Lansing said if we didn't make major structural changes, we'd be out of business by the beginning of our fiscal year in 2025. I know, David, because I'm sitting in the newsroom that there's a lot of anger uh, in response to some of these cuts. Share a little bit more of what the internal reaction has been. Anger, I think you've seen pain, you've seen anguish, in some cases betrayal, a feeling perhaps that somehow... Um, the network is turning its back on younger journalists, on people of color, on the kinds of audiences John Lansing talked about as his North Star. Now, the network has just released this afternoon data showing that the network is still going to be 42 percent people of color. That's what it was before the cuts. The network would remain, uh, I think, over half uh, female. You know, 58 percent, I believe that number is. And so they say it's keeping consistent, but that they've tried to work hard to do it. And let me also say union leaders. Pat O'Donnell represents the largest union of workers at the company. She says there was a real problem and that she felt the company negotiated in very good faith. Last thing, David, what does this mean for our listeners, for our readers? Listen, audiences will undoubtedly be disappointed, as as many of our colleagues are today. But, you know, you've got to understand in media, in broadcasting, in podcasting, nothing's guaranteed for life. And the network has to figure out ways to produce things that people want to hear while fulfilling its mission. NPR media correspondent David Falkenflick. Thank you. You bet. The United States has two new national monuments. They were dedicated this week by President Biden. One is in Nevada, the Avikwame. That's the Mojave name for Spirit Mountain. The other is Kastner Range in El Paso, Texas. And we got reports from both monuments, starting with Ryan Heinches of member station KNAU. 
Avikwame sits at the southern tip of Nevada, south of Las Vegas, and at the convergence of the Arizona and California borders. The craggy, rugged landscape is part of the Mojave Desert. It's home to abundant plant and animal life. It's also among the most sacred areas for a dozen southwestern tribes. Timothy Williams is the chairman of the Fort Mojave Indian Tribe. This is where our creation story begins. Much like uh, other religions, they have a place of creation. There's definitely some areas within their own stories that are sacred to them. And this is our place um, of Equal May the Mountain. Williams was with President Joe Biden earlier this week as he signed the declaration. The half-million-acre expanse is the president's largest monument designation to date. Its centerpiece is Spirit Mountain. Each time you you know you go up there, you you just feel something different up there. You know, so powerful it can knock you to your knees. For over a decade, the Mojave and other tribes and conservationists have pushed for federal protection of the area. Taylor Patterson is a member of the Bishop Paiute tribe who advocated for the designation. All of the tribes that call the Southwest home have moved through this area and found it to be really important and really significant. Patterson says Avikwame is also a key migration route for bighorn sheep. It's critical habitat for desert tortoises and many other species. You can find some of the largest and oldest Joshua trees in the country there. People the mistake of the desert being desolate, but we know there's so much there. You can really see that in full spectrum in Avikwame. The designation comes as indigenous peoples in Arizona and northern Nevada fight mining projects backed by the Biden administration on sacred lands. Still, dozens of southwestern tribes, along with local governments, supported the president's designation of Avikwame as a national monument. For NPR News, I'm Ryan Heinches. I'm Angela Kocherga, and I'm standing on the edge of the brand new Kastner Range National Monument. Stunning mountains are in full view. There's a wide open expanse. Some of the first golden poppies are starting to bloom. This land has been home to multiple tribal people, dating back thousands of years. And apparently they even had spiritual connections to some of these sites as well. Scott Cutler is president of the Frontera Land Alliance, one of the El Paso organizations that led the fight to preserve Kastner Range. Uh, there are rock art sites on Kastner Range that are very significant. Natural springs and wildlife made this a prime location for tribes. The landscape is still important to the Isleta Sur del Pueblo people in El Paso. Tribal Councilman Rafael Shorty Gomez worked hard to preserve the 7,000 acres. You need those places. You need those places for people could, to escape, you know, to refocus on life. And if, for the kids, too. This now peaceful place served as a training ground until 1966 for soldiers who fought in World War II, Korea, and Vietnam. Veterans from across the country also wanted the National Monument, says Frontera Land Alliance Director Janae Renault. There is history here. It was a live firing range, hence the range. The decades-old fight to protect Kastner Range grew more urgent as development from El Paso sprawled closer. On the edge of Kastner Range, a mockingbird competes with nearby traffic. Before the monument can open to the public, the military has to ensure all unexploded munitions are cleared. But those who fought long and hard are patient, knowing the land is protected for future generations. For NPR News, I'm Angela Cocherga in El Paso. And you are listening to All Things Considered.
This is 90.9 WBUR. Stocks rose across the board on Wall Street. The Dow gained four-tenths of a percent today. S&P grew by more than a half percent, and the Nasdaq picked up three-tenths of a percent to close the week. The average cost of home heating oil in Massachusetts continues to drop. A State Department of Energy Resources survey shows the average price this week at $4.15 a gallon. That's down five cents a gallon from last week and 72 cents lower a gallon than it was one year ago. Marketplace has all the business news coming up at 6.30. It's now 6.20. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Into the Woods. Stephen Sondheim and James Lapine's Tony Award-winning musical is coming to Boston direct from Broadway and with its Broadway stars to boot. And now a second week of performances has just been added. Into the Woods plays at Emerson Colonial Theater for two weeks, now through April 2nd. Tickets at emersoncolonialtheater.com. Tomorrow morning on WBUR, NPR, Sylvia Pajoli talks about her more than four decades of reporting and having one of the most recognized names at NPR. Tune in at 90.9 or on the WBUR app. And join NPR host Ari Shapiro and me on Sunday at City Space for a conversation about his new memoir and tales from his broadcast career. Tickets are available to join us virtually or in person at WBUR.org events. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School, proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu globe. I'm Tiziana Deering. Local journalism has disappeared from communities across America. Research from Harvard shows the erosion of local journalism has contributed to the deterioration of civic engagement in affected communities. Boston is fortunate to have robust local journalism, but we can't take it for granted. Start a monthly contribution to WBUR to keep our local journalism strong. Give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Juana Summers. This week, a grand jury indicted 10 people on charges of second-degree murder in the death of Ivo Otieno. He was in a mental health crisis at Virginia's Central State Hospital earlier this month. And sadly, he is the latest case of a Black person killed in an encounter with law enforcement. Ivo Otieno's older brother, Leon Ochieng, spoke at a press conference last week. Can someone explain to me why my brother is not here right now? Someone explain to me why my mother can't sleep, can't eat. We're broken. Our hearts are broken. This week, I spoke with two other families who know that heartbreak and who now know each other. Before we get started, I don't think I had the pleasure of meeting Princess, and if I do, I don't remember. Yes, Miss Rice, I'm sending much love to you and positive energy and support to you and your family. Thank you. You as well. Um, That's Samaria Rice and Princess Blanding. In 2014, police in Cleveland shot and killed Rice's 12-year-old son, Tamir. He'd been playing with a toy pistol. The officers involved in the shooting avoided federal charges in a case that sparked a national reckoning over police brutality. I have the love for the people and still fighting for justice for my son which he will be 21 years old, June 25th of this year. And Princess Blanding is the sister of Marcus David Peters. Officers shot and killed him in Richmond, Virginia, during a mental health crisis in 2018. Blanding helped pass a state law named after Marcus, even though she says it didn't do enough to push for police accountability. 
she remains an outspoken activist. For me, I get strength by speaking out, by fighting. We brought both women together on Zoom and over the phone to reflect on this moment and what it's been like since their lives were torn apart. I started with Samaria Rice, and I asked her how she's feeling eight years after Tamir was shot and killed. A lot of um, sadness and disappointment, heartache and pain. A lot of rage and very emotional. Nobody in America could tell me why I don't have an indictment for my 12-year-old son that was murdered by a Cleveland police officer. So that's kind of how I'm doing these days. I have my good and bad days. It's not easy. And Princess May will mark five years since Marcus was killed. What What's on your mind when you think about that? You know, I'm, I must echo some of the things that uh, Ms. Rice said, you know, the pain will never go away. It, it will never go away. The That day is ingrained in my brain and, and May is coming up again. So every birthday, every every May, you know, it's it's that void being put in your face that your loved one, in this case, that my brother Marcus David Peters will never come back again. And, you know, I am very unapologetically a mad Black woman. The system has given me and, and quite frankly, all Black people reasons to be mad Black men and women. And to make matters worse, last January, I lost yet another brother at the hand of police, but this time in New Jersey. So um, it's like the pain doesn't end, whether it's it's my loved ones, uh, you know, or it's, you know, Tamir Rice, you know, whether it's Tyree Nichols, like there's always another name. So the, the pain continues to just grow deeper and deeper. Um, first of all, Princess, I'm so sorry that you've had to deal with the loss of not one brother, but two. I didn't see as much national coverage of your brother, Marcus David's death, as other names that are often invoked when it comes to the deaths of Black Americans at the hands of police. What has that experience been like for you? I, 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 I literally was just thinking about that same question and the same feelings over the past you know, a couple of weeks after the other young man, Mr. Uh, Ivo, was killed here in, in Virginia. And the reason why that came back to mind is because this young man was experiencing a mental health crisis as well. The little attention that my brother's case did get was because we didn't back down, you know, because the media put out the the message, crazy Black man, you know, and tried to make immediately the victim the criminal. And what I'll say is that you know, from the lack of coverage, you know, from me kind of getting into the frying pan with these players, I understand how this political system works. So it doesn't surprise me anymore. Samaria, your son's death garnered a good deal of national attention. It is a story that many of us have heard and sat with. I wonder if you can share a little bit about what it was like to be thrust into this incredibly massive spotlight while you were grieving your loss. It was horrific. It was horrible. I had two children still in school at the at uh, in this process, and you know I was given ultimatums to do this and do that, and uh, very um, overwhelming because I'm still a mom and I still have two children, and I just had a new grandbaby and my oldest daughter. So again, uh, to be thrust in the limelight. It wasn't easy. Uh, it was not easy. It's never going to be easy. You might not come back from a situation like this mentally, spiritually, physically. 
police terrorism. It destroys families. Me and my family have PTSD to this day. And America should be ashamed of themselves. There's no liberty and justice for no one that's Black in this country or brown. I'd like to invite both of you to weigh in on what's happened nationally since you lost Tamir and Marcus. As we sit here, there has still not been federal police reform passed. To each of you, what do you want federal authorities to know? Samaria, I'll start with you. I think the DOJ is very cowardly. And um, the whole administration up there, they have blood on their hands. And if they're okay with that, God be with them. They should cease fire on black and brown people in this country. That's what they can do. That's the first and most important thing that they can do. And Princess, what about you? What do you think that federal officials need to understand? We the people have a lot of power when we unite. When the people come together, we move mountains. Um, I am a strong believer that we must take some steps to include ending qualified immunity. I am a very strong supporter of defunding the police, but I also understand what it means. When we say defund the police, we mean allocate funds to systems of community care and service. Police officers shouldn't be the ones responding to a mental health crisis. I also very strongly believe that we must abolish the police. Policing, if you go back to its inception, was never designed to ensure liberty and justice for all. So we can't expect for that soil to produce flowers that were never planted there. So we must abolish the system. And I'm not oblivious. That scares people as well. We abolish it, but we have to put together, we have to build a system that works for us all, that prioritizes community care and safety. So that's where I believe that we must go as a people to force the government to take those actions. Princess Blanding is the sister of Marcus David Peters. She's also an activist and former candidate for governor in Virginia. Samaria Rice is the mother of Tamir Rice. She's also founder and CEO of the Tamir Rice Foundation, an Afrocentric cultural center in Cleveland, Ohio. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's Don Quixote, returning for the first time in more than 10 years, on stage now through the 26th. Tickets at bostonballet.org.